Hey there, this is Dennis Anyone with Dennis Hensley, a podcast about making things up and making things happen. Today my guest is Jim Colucci. If you're a serious XM OutQ fan, you will know Jim as the must-hear TV guy on the Frank DeCaro show. Uh, he's a writer, he does a lot of uh, journalism about television, but he has a new book out called Golden Girls Forever, and I think the title says it all, and this book is big and thick and gorgeous, which sounds like a setup for a Blanche joke, but it's just, when um, we set up the interview and the publicist sent me the book, when I opened it, it was like, oh my god, it's so comprehensive and beautiful and lovingly put together, so if you're a fan of the Golden Girls, or even if you're not, um, you're going to want to pick up this book because it's gorgeous. And if you have a friend who is a fan, it's the ideal gift, and it just came out now. So before we get to Jim, um, I want to give a shout-out to some folks who donated to my virtual tip jar. It helps me keep the podcast free and pay for some of the expenses that come up and the web hosting services and stuff like that. Well, the guest for my last two podcasts was Derek Hartley, and he is host of co-host of the show, Derek and Romaine. And he must have encouraged his listeners to kick into my virtual tip jar because I've never gotten so much virtual tip jar love as I have the last couple weeks. So I'm going to give a shout out to Julie Schnecksnader, Edward Allen, Patrick Tubbs, Stephen Willard. I know it's crazy, right? Uh, Kim Roberts, Oscar Moltine. Peter Spilecki, Malcolm Campbell, Robert Mulder, Edward Allen, William Moore, Stacey Power, and Brian Cummins. Um, I don't know if you all came through the Derrick Avenue, but i got to have him on my show, show more often. Um, thank you for your support. It really means a lot. If you're new to the podcast, I hope you like it um, and keep coming back and listening. I love doing it. Um, you can do that, donate at DennisAnyone.net. You can also see some pictures from past podcasts. All the other podcasts are archived there. There's fun stuff you can do there. Um, and I just got a new email address um, <laughs> to to get, you know, used for business purposes or listeners. And it's Dennis at DennisHensley.com, right? Because I still am on AOL and I've heard from younger people that, in the business world, if you've got an AOL address, people judge you. They're like, oh, that old queen. Um, you just as well be a Tyrannosaurus Rex. So I am now Dennis at DennisHensley.com. So if you want to shoot me an email about the podcast, say something you like or don't like, um, I welcome your emails in my spanking new inbox. So that's all the yakking for now. I talk plenty with Jim. It's another long one, but it's really terrific, especially if you're a fan of the Golden Girls. So here is Jim Colucci. Hey there, I am here in the Sherman Oaks home of Jim Colucci, author of the new book, Golden Girls Forever. And if you're a serious fan, you know Jim, because he's the must-see TV guy, must-hear TV guy on the Frank DeCaro show, and he's also the husband of Frank DeCaro, so you're part of the family. Yeah. And you've got this amazing new book, Golden Girls Forever, and I'd seen that you'd been working on it. I'd heard about it a little bit over the years. Heard about and it a little I, bit. I probably bored you to death for the past ten no, years. No, no. You know, and when somebody, when it arrived, you know, because you see the cover, you see pictures, you don't know if it's like, oh, this is a book I'd pick up at Urban Outfitters or whatever, or if it's like the definitive tome, Golden Girls, everything. And it is the latter. It is gorgeous. Thank you. 
And when you start going through it and reading it, you're like, oh my God, this is comprehensive. Thank like, you. did you Ten know? Years worth. Ten years. When did you first start thinking about, I want to write a book about the Golden Girls? When did you sort of conceive the idea of even doing it? I first started the idea in 2002. I had been writing for TV Guide and a few other TV magazines for a few years. Right. And I always, as a kid, had collected whatever materials were out there about my favorite shows, usually sitcoms. Right. But TV books, maybe I didn't realize it as a kid, but TV books, I realized as I got older, are usually done kind of on, on the fast. Right. On the cheap. Um, they're not usually very comprehensive. They right. usually are a lot... I mean, not, there's nothing wrong with photos, but they're usually more photos than there is information otherwise. Uh, and so I kind of always wanted to do one, but do it more in depth the way I would always want to have it as a reader. That I, if I were to buy the book, I'd want right. this kind of information. And so uh, while I was working at, at an ad agency in New York and still freelancing for TV Guide and other places, I wrote a Golden Girls book proposal. And I got hooked up with a book agent. And as she was about to go out with the Golden Girls book proposal... She said to me, by the way, there's an open assignment to write a book about Will and Grace. Would you be interested in that? And hello, that's my other favorite show. Right. And it was in production at the time. So that was like really being offered a, a trip to fantasy camp to right. go hang out at Will and Grace for, you know, however many weeks and observe them and interview them and write a book. So I did that first. So the Golden Girls went on the back burner for a little bit while I did Will and Grace. And so I, I researched Will and Grace in late 2003. The book came out in late 2004. And then after that dust settled in terms of promoting that book, I went, I, you know, took out that three-year-old now Golden Girls proposal and just decided to work on it again. In the meanwhile, I just coincidentally was lucky, as I said, I was living in New York, that Frank, my husband, was shooting the game show I've Got a Secret in, in Los Angeles right. for three months in the spring of 2006, February, March, April of 2006. And so I knew that I had a three-month window. I had left the ad agency at this point, so I could right. work from home. I had a three-month window where I could be in Los Angeles and research the Golden Girls book. Hadn't sold it yet, but knew that I needed to do the research. And, you know, I didn't want to be macabre about it, but it was 2006. That means that Betty was 84, B was almost 84, Estelle was almost 84. You know, when your stars, three of the stars, and Rue was in her 70s, when all four of your stars are in their 70s and 80s, yeah. and you want to talk to all of them for a definitive book, you better get moving. So I Step to it. Step to it. So I used those three months to interview uh, my first giant batch of people. So the moment I got to L.A. in February, I put in calls to B and Betty Rue. I knew I would talk to back in New York. She lived in New York, so I would set that up for later, and I did. I did her in May in New York. But uh, in February, I put calls in to B and Betty, and then Susan Harris, of course, and then lots of other writers, and made sure that I got those biggies right away. And so, were they were they agreeable to being interviewed for it? Because it's a book that hadn't sold yet. Yeah. Were they all like, yeah, let's do it? Not necessarily at first, but the good thing about doing a book is that once you interview the first few people... Right, once you get somebody big on board, everyone else says that, yes. Right, and especially if that person really likes you then and can vouch for you and right. say... He's not looking for dirt to embarrass us. Right. He's not going to say anything bad about the show. He's good to have in your house. He's not a creepy, you know, right. all of the things that people would worry about, obviously, doing an interview. Um, so I started with uh, my very first interview was uh, one of the gay writers for the show, Stan Zimmerman, who's mm -hmm. wonderful. And so I, right, knew, I, met I, knew, him. I knew Stan a little bit right. at the time. Now, now I know him a lot better. But I knew him a little bit at the time. I went to his house for the interview. We had a great time. 
And I think that he helped, using his name and also him literally making the recommendation physically helped a lot. And what I found is that most people, when I sat with them, you know, I'd spend anywhere from an hour to, you know, with B, it was like four hours in their house. Um, and they would, and most people at the end would break out their phone book and say, who else do you need? This has been great. You know, I want to make sure other people talk to you. So once you, I, I think with any book project like that, start with the people, you know, and then they will, you know, the ball will start rolling. Did you have a vision for what you wanted it to be? Cause the way it's written, there's that you go through episode by episode and you have reminiscence of it. You have a synopsis of the episode and then you also have individual chapters on each of the women. Did you know what it would look like or were you just like, I'm going to get all the information I can and figure it out later? I, I kind of, a little of both. I did know basically what it would look like because I had structured the book proposal much similar to what this is, but also my will and grace book was structured similarly to this as well, as much as circumstances around that book would allow. Um, but I always wanted as a, again, as a reader to have a book that I could read in two ways. You can read at least a chunk of it narratively to say, I want to read the story of how this got developed through how it was received and what casting and, and casting. Well, yeah. Read it as a story, like one long narrative. And so reading like a regular book, but I also wanted something that would be a reference book. That That's what I want. I want to go back and watch every episode right. and then go to your chapter and read this guest star said this or that. That's what's really fun about and it. And that's what I always wanted. And as, a, as as I said, as a reader, right. buying these books as a kid, I always wanted the kind of book that once I saw an episode, I could go look in the book. Okay, let me look at that chapter. Oh, what did somebody say about that? Because it's when you've just seen the episode, that makes the commentary that much more pertinent. Oh, it's so interesting. It's so alive. Right. Um, when you w- went back to watch the episodes, had you seen them all? I, I as a viewer? Or, or were you like, I don't remember this. Oh, no, I've never no, seen I'd this. I've seen them all. Because seen remember... I started doing this research in 2006, right. and between 1992, when the show ended in 2006, it was on Lifetime, like six times right. a day. And, you know, I was bored getting dressed for my, the ad agency job that I didn't like. Right. And so every morning I was watching two. Every night I was watching two as I went to sleep. So I had seen You had them seen them all. There was none that you... There were no like, surprises. Oh, that fell through the cracks. I mean, there are a couple that are less memorable. And right. so when they come on, you're always like, oh, yeah, I always forget about this one. Right. But even then, there will be a moment in it where it's a famous line. And you're like, oh, yeah, I knew that was coming. That's yeah. right. I forgot. I have seen this many, many times. So which was the f- first lead actress that you got? The first one that I got was... Betty. And you sit down with Betty White. How do you start? Well, Betty, you know, this was interesting because Betty was, even at age 84 to 10 years ago, one of the busiest people I'd ever met. Right. And I had just in 2005, in November of 2005, so a few months before I ended up sitting down with her, I had, I had witnessed when Betty B and Rue came to the Barnes and Noble in Chelsea, which is no longer there in New York City. And they were doing a season three DVD signing. And the, first of all, the store was overwhelmed. It was swamped and mobbed, and they, and they, did, the they probably didn't quite know what they had Even there. Today, people don't. I, I'm going to blame it on straight people. I'm going to do it right now. I'm going to say yes. Old straight guys, I think, who run, unfortunately, the world. <laughs> I'm getting political. Um, no, I don't mean that literally, but you know, I mean figuratively. Right. A lot of the people in power don't necessarily respect television, and they certainly don't respect. Let's face it, women and older women. Right, and so. I think that a lot of people, including in fields like publishing and whatever, right. hear Golden Girls and they think you're kidding when you say it's a phenomenon. And no, it, still it, is. it would have been like the Beatles in Chelsea and in I, 2005. I, I actually liken it to the Beatles in the book because the... Of the, course, they, then they probably couldn't run as fast yeah, as they they're could. being chased down 8th Avenue. Exactly. 
the response was insane. Were I mean, you there? I was there, and I luckily had a you know a, a friend at the bookstore who made sure I got in and whatever. But the line snaked around the bookstore, outside, down the block in the rain, you know, six people wide, and they had to cut it off at one point because they're like, we're never going to get all these people inside the store. I don't even know what they cut it off at. It was like a thousand. I don't know. Right. Um, but and and the signing was only supposed to go a certain amount of time. They ended up staying for over three hours. Betty had flown in that morning done Regis and Kathy Lee, I think it was at the time, stayed for the three-hour book signing after, went and did Letterman immediately after, and then flew home. So oh Betty, at age God. 84, flew in like on a red eye, did two talk shows and a three-hour book signing, got off back and went up. Oh, my plane. God. That and sounds like Joan Rivers' schedule. Yeah, but I mean, that's people who are that vital in their 80s. I'm floored and awed by it. Uh, but even at 84, that's what Betty's life was like. So when I first got to L.A., as I said, in that February of 2006, I put in calls to B and Betty first. As I said, uh, Rue I knew I would get in New York. Right. And Estelle, had, I'd already been told by a lot of her friends and caretakers and her sons that she wasn't well enough to talk. So I, I ended up speaking to all those people about her and trying to round out the picture of Estelle by talking to those in her life. But I, I didn't get to speak with her. I didn't mm-hmm. want to torture the woman, you know, obviously if she wasn't well. Um, so I knew B, B and Betty with, and Susan Harris were the big three that I had to get while I was here. Um, Be- Betty, her assistant, I got put in touch with right away. You know, her office is ultra efficient, even though her assistant and Betty, you know, are not computer people. They're, you know, they're not email. It's all done the old fashioned way. It's like old fashioned secretarial skills. And her assistant said, this was February, Betty has an hour and it was some date in late April at like 2 PM on, you know, say it was April 20th. It was something really far off. Right. And I was, I'll take it. You know, I, I know I'll still be here. It'll be the end of my time, but like, I, it's within my window. I'll take it. So I had Betty on the books for a long time, but it wasn't going to happen. So in the for a while. So in the meanwhile, that's when I spoke to Stan Zimmerman and other writers. And Mort Nathan was one of my first. And you know, so I did get to fill in a lot of other details in the meanwhile. Right. And B. Arthur was kind of an interesting booking experience too, because uh, in the old days before IMDb Pro you would go to the uh, Screen Actors Guild and they had a referral line where they would give you the person, the name of the person's agent or wh- wh- whomever represented them. And so I called the SAG representation line and they give out what they called a reference number. And I didn't know what that was, but it turned out it was B's home number. And so I called this number and I get what's clearly her voice on the answering machine saying, you know, I'm not home right now, but leave a message. And I'm freaking out like, Oh my God, I'm about to leave a message for B. Arthur. Right. So I left a message saying what the book was and who I was. And, and I didn't hear back. Right. I, I probably didn't hear back at least for a week. And so I tried again and, you know, I didn't want to stalk an 84 year old woman and, and harass her, right. but I had a limited window of time. And obviously I can't do the book without talking to B. So eventually she called me back. I was driving down Santa Monica Boulevard and my phone rings and it says B. Arthur because I put her number in my phone and I flip out. And that started about a three week dance of us calling each other and her warming up a little bit more each time to the idea of doing an interview. The first time she said, I don't want to do the interview. It's not a happy time for me. I don't want to talk about it. And then I'd say, oh, really, I can't do it without you. Well, let's talk next week. So... Even the first time she said, I don't want to do it, she was, and this is the, the kind of person she was and why I fell in love with her even more, because she want, 80% of her wanted to say no, but 20% of her was really giving and generous and wanted to say yes. And I think that ratio kept changing. As she got more comfortable with me, she was very vulnerable on the inside and she had learned, I guess, to protect herself. 
And once I think she got more comfortable with the fact that I wasn't looking, again, to embarrass her or say anything mean to her or tell her how much I like jokes that called Dorothy ugly, you know, things that bothered her about the show, once she knew that I think she could trust me, she warmed up and warmed up. And so finally we scheduled it. So I finally did get to go to her house and it was like a four hour day. It was great. Wow. And when she were there, she opened up and, and talked and... It was a funny story. How do you start story. with them? Well, what are the first things you ask them? Because it's so comprehensive. I mean, I do talk to them about why they think it's so lasting. Right. I do talk, and then, you know, it's easy to do it chronologically. So you can say, what did you first think when you heard about the show? When you read the script. First think when you read the script. What do you bring to Rose or to Blanche or to Dorothy that's you in particular? What is unlike you? Uh, How do you think the character changed over the course of the series? So you can start with general questions like that. But in the type of format of this book, it did require episode-by-episode stories. Right. And so I would then apologize and say, I'm going to ask you real nitty-gritty, which is from 20-something years ago. If you don't remember, fine. Don't be embarrassed. But I'm going to keep going by episode-by-episode, especially ones that are big on your character. And... You know, you can, you can any interview you can do prompted or unprompted. You can start with, well, tell me your favorites first. Yeah. And then you can say, okay, well, do you remember this one? Do you remember this one? What did this say about Rose? What did this say about Blanche? So that's why it took four hours with B and with, you know, with Betty. I did only have one hour that day, but I did get some fo- follow-up time on the phone. So it ended up balancing out. And Rue, it's actually an interview for the Archive of American Television. It's actually online. But even during breaks of that interview, when we would reset the cameras and touch up the makeup and stuff, I'd be with my recorder torturing you, you never more know. questions because you never know when we're going to run out of time. So not all of my Golden Girls questions are in that archive interview, but you can see most of our day online. Who had the best memory? Betty. Betty. Betty is a machine. And Betty not only remembers what things were, why she did them, who the guest stars were... She also knows how to tell a story in a soundbite. I mean, she is everything you want in an interviewee. I found this with Will and Grace, too. You probably find this with your interviewees, too. Right. With Will and Grace, I was categorizing people into you know thinking versus feeling, for, for lack of better categories. And two of the actors were very thinking, which means that they were, they were an interviewer's dream because you could say, in that episode, you did this. Why did you do it? And they said, well... I first thought that it might be funny if we did this, but then when I talked to the writer, and then we thought everything was intellectually planned. Eric and who else? It was Eric and Deborah, and uh, and Deborah to a lesser extent, particularly Eric. But Eric, Deborah right. too was very good at telling you. I thought of this. This is my favorite moment. I did, and then feeling, I think, makes for hilarious comedy actors. It just makes it a tougher interview because they went with the flow of what they're they feeling in the instinctual. moment. It's instinctual. It's in the moment. And once it's done, it's kind of gone. Like, right. they don't, they're on to the next. And so sitting with them to say, why did you do this? A lot of times you get, oh, I don't know, I was just feeling it. And it's, you know, so it's, it takes a little bit more prodding. So, and that would have been Sean and Megan. That was Sean and Megan. Particularly Who were Megan. the thinking versus feeling with the Golden Girls? Um, Betty was really thinking. Right. I'd say Rue was too. B was more feeling. Uh, and I don't know about stuff. Right. One of the questions I put on my uh, Instagram that I was going to be talking to you, what should I ask him? And one of them was, somebody asked who was the most fun to hang out with an interview. Um, B. Um, I'm sorry. I, I said B, and I meant Betty, but I, you know what? That was probably a Freudian slip, because I had such a good day with B. I think that I'm going to say Betty, because Betty 
just was giving me what I need. Boom, right. boom, boom. We're sitting in her in her sunny, butter yellow living room. Her dog Pontiac, her golden retriever, who's still with us, I believe. What was a great lying, dog's name. I know. He was lying on my feet. I'm petting a golden retriever and talking to Betty White in her home. So, and she's giving me funny, 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 and, you know, so present. So I think that was my favorite. But B was such a fascinating day that I got to spend with her, and I love her, and at the end I hugged her, and I, I mean, it was a dream come true. So I think that's why the Freudian slip in me just said B. Well, as you were describing the dance with B, there's something poignant. It is. It's about so- the B thing that makes it, you sort of want to touch your heart a little bit like it feels a little bit more along that line yes. in ways that sometimes are probably a little uncomfortable or whatever but there's something you hit it right on the head you know deep about she it. said at different times you know there was another time when she called me back during the dance the three week dance we sure. had about going back and forth she called me back and again I was in a terrible place to answer the phone I was in the Beverly Hills Public Library back in the days where you had to go somewhere for free Wi-Fi. right and oh my gosh the phone rings and it says B. Arthur and I'm like screw it I'm taking it yeah. And so I take the call and everybody's yelling at me. Shut up. You're in a library. Shut up. And I'm like, I, this is B. Arthur. Go fuck yourselves. Right. So I finally, can I say go fuck yourselves? On yes, the of course. So I, I finally, you know, I'm talking to her. I'm like kind of trying to whisper. I'm standing in the window well, leaning out as far as I can. And I saying to be something like, you know, I really want to do this interview. And she says, well, I'm going to Chicago this weekend. When I get back next week. Call me again, and we'll talk. It's always, always call me again, call me again. And so I said, okay, and this was a Friday. So I said to her, well, have a great weekend. I really look forward to talking to you. I was really being a brown noser. And she ha- she hates phonies. That's one thing you, you, right. you, you can tell about me. And I said, I really look forward to talking to you. And she said, I don't, and hung up. So, you know, she had that really gruff exterior. And I think what people thought about her, which was wrong and was misjudging her fatally, was that you could play rough with her because she was tall and she was known to be tough. They thought she liked to play rough. They thought, you know, like, you know, make Dorothy jokes, call her big and ugly, you know, make fun of her. That's one of the things I picked up is that that was not something that there was, there was one of the writers I, I, who was new at the time. And he said, Oh, I learned very early on not to go there for jokes. Don't. Yeah. Well, yeah, they actually had to stop what they called Dorothy bashing. Yeah. Because after a few seasons, she just said to them, I've taken this for seasons now and I, I don't like it. And then there was a famous moment in the beginning of season four where two brand new writers on the show, Richard Vaxi and Tracy Gamble, turned in their first script that they ever were writing for the show. They were new to season four. And it wasn't even their joke, but one of the executive producers had, you know, in, in, as producers do, they punch up scripts and sure. add jokes and rewrite. They had rewritten something and added a joke where they called her, I don't remember if it was the time they called her Fess Parker or Buddy Epson because they ended up using it somewhere else. And at the table read, they got to that moment and B burst out in tears and left and refused to come back. And the, they told the writers, like, basically, go to your room. And they were hiding their, in their room thinking, we just, we're going to get we'll fired. We're going to get fired. It's our first We're going to take the fall for this. We're going to take the fall. We didn't even write that. Yeah. We're, and we're going to take oh. the fall. And they didn't get fired. And B was talked down off of it and whatever. But, I mean, that show, and that was the real lesson in the show. No more Dorothy bashing. I mean, if you're going to make this woman that we love there's cry. A, there's a vulnerability there that right. is surprising. Right. That you might find that's, surprising. That's, and that's what I'm saying. People, that I think, thought with her if they didn't know her well or just from the surface that she was a tough New York broad or something. Yeah. And that wasn't who she was. It was her exterior. But on the interior, she was easily hurt, really vulnerable, a big mushball, very sentimental. 
and all those wonderful things that you would want her to be, really, if you wanted to be friends with her. So you just had to kind of stick it out past the gruffness, like, you know, in this three-week dance we were doing, to kind of break through to that. And I, th- I felt like I got to, you know. So we sat down in her house, and it was actually not her real house because her sons were in the middle of redecorating it for her. And that's the one that just sold in Pacific Palisades for something mm-hmm. like $19 million. Um, so she was in a temporary house, a rental in Brentwood, really right near Betty. And I don't think either of them knew it because B was there for a short time. Right. Uh, and so all, it was all rental furniture and she wasn't quite familiar with where everything was in the kitchen. And we sat down and she was always barefoot. So she had her bare feet up on the coffee table. And for the first hour, it was hard to get through to her. You know, I had, as I said, I had really had to cajole my way in the door. And so she was giving me like one syllable answers. Yes. No. I don't know. And I was sitting there thinking, oh God, after all this time, I'm not getting anything usable. And then she opened up more and I got some good stories. And you know, I think she, she said at one point, I would have preferred to talk about Maud. That was easier for me to talk about. I'm like, well, you know, maybe someday. But so, so I could see that she was eager to help in a way that she could, but she didn't necessarily, as I said, she was more feeling. She didn't necessarily remember anecdotes about particular episodes. Yeah. So we taught, we talked what we could and, and you know, she, she did open up. Uh, there was a funny moment at quarter to four. I got to her house probably about, I don't know, one, one thirty. Uh, at quarter to four, you can hear on my audio tape where she says, Judge Judy's on in 15 minutes. She mumbles it under her breath. And I ignored it because I was like, okay, it took me two months to get in the door to come to your house. And we talked for like three weeks on the phone or four weeks on the phone, whatever it was. I'm not leaving so you can watch Judge Judy. So I ignored it. I pretended I didn't hear it. And then you can hear it like 10 after four on the recording. She said, I guess I can miss Judge Judy for one day. But Judge Judy was her idol, and I think they were friends in real life, because Judge Judy was everything B loved, which is no bullshit. You know, B, uh, did, could, she called herself a bubble pricker. She didn't want any, she wanted any phonies, she didn't want any bullshit, and she, would want, she wanted to call you on it. Yeah. And that's what Judge Judy does, so I, B it loved her. So B did miss Judge Judy for one day. That's so funny. And then as so I specific. it was so specific. It's so funny to you. I, I forgot this detail. I was just telling somebody this story the other day. Um, well, the, the first part of it is that I had said in agree in getting to her to, to agree to the interview, I had agreed to stay after the interview and have a drink with her, which of course I'd love. Why wouldn't of I do that? Yeah. The only thing is, I did have to get the rental car back to West Hollywood by six because Hertz was closing. And here I am at her house at like 5.15 and we're... Hurts is your Judge Judy. I know. Yes, exactly. And we're finishing up in Brentwood. And so I'm packing up my computer and I, she goes in the kitchen and I hear her yelling, yo And I forgot that we were in the house alone together because she does have a houseman who shops with her for her sometimes and I guess comes in every once in a while. And I was like, oh right, she's forgotten my name. That's me. She's calling me. I'm yo So I go in to the kitchen and she opens the pantry and she says, pick what you want. And it was stocked with every kind of booze you can imagine. She liked her booze. Right. And I'm thinking, what's the least offensive that I can, you know, gulp down in 45 minutes and get out of here and get back to West Hollywood? So I pick white wine and she keeps confusing the bottles of white wine for the exact same wine. No, take this one. No, take this one. It's all the same wine. The guy who shops for me buys me this. He knows I love it. So I, I'm rummaging around in her kitchen drawers looking for a corkscrew. She doesn't know where anything is either. It's in this rental house. And of course, that's when you have that step back and you have a surreal moment. I'm rummaging through B. Arthur's kitchen drawers looking for a corkscrew. Right. Just need to take a mental picture of this from space and right. keep it for later. Uh, and I notice it's screw top wine anyway. And she pulls out two giant balloon goblets and pours the entire bottle into the two glasses. So we're each drinking a half a bottle of wine. It's so full that I had to slurp it off the table before I could move it. And we go sit 
on in back in the living room again with her feet on the coffee table and now we're making small talk not about Golden Girls deliberately because I don't want to bring it up again if she's right. bored with talking about it and somebody asked me this is the part that I forgot to tell somebody somebody asked me what did you talk about the one thing I just remembered the other day that we talked about be, she was obsessed with I guess what did you call it? like whatever happened to Baby Jane were they called like hag movies the movies oh, where yeah. the movies where the great silver screen movie queens were degraded, you know, like into doing horror in the right. 60s and 70s, where they'd come back and do these kind of, I think they were called hag movies. Right. And so, you know, obviously whatever happened to Baby Jane and Hush Hush Sweet Charlotte, where they'd all, all these women would come back and play these Harridan roles. And I told her about one that I had seen late night when I was in college in Philadelphia, when we, I could only get one channel on my rabbit ears. And it was, I couldn't believe it existed. It was two in the morning. When, you know, when you turn the TV sometimes and you can't believe what you're seeing, like, what the hell is this? It was a British made movie with Lana Turner where she, the plot was basically that she loved her cats more than she loved her son. She had these Pers- white Persian cats, and her son finally got a, a, got out from under her and went out and got married and had a kid of his own. And then one night, one of Lana's cats kills the kid, and the son goes crazy. And by the end, he makes Lana drink milk out of a saucer on the floor like a cat. Oh wow! And I, I, so I asked Dennis Dermody, who was our resident right, movie expert course. on Frank's show, and he said, oh, it's called Persecution. It's fabulous. I'll get you a copy. So I had had that in the back of my head, and so I told B about it. I'm like, oh, well, I just heard, you know, I, I just found out what this movie was that I'd seen long ago, and she just said, you must get that for me. So I sent it to her, like that Labor Day as a thank you, a VHS of Persecution. And I like to think that she sat and watched it. I don't know if she ever did, but... You never heard back. I never heard back. I actually... It actually took a while. It was probably the next Labor Day. It was when I had heard she had cancer. Yeah. And so I was hoping that it was like, at least, you know, she got this in the mail. It was a nice little treat if she was homebound, uh, that, you know, she got to watch Lana Turner get humiliated. Yeah. Now, Betty's still alive. Did Does she... Have you sent her a copy of the book, or have you had any uh, contact with her since it's come out? And I have not it is? yet. I keep meaning to send her a copy of the book, but I want to sit and write the world's most loving thank you letter to her yeah. for participating in the book. And I'm, I'm actually intimidated that I'm, you know, I, I want to think of just the right thing to say to Betty. I think she's going to be blown away by it. I think she's going to be blown away at how uh, comprehensive I hope and so. beautiful it is. I hope so. You know, I'm going to the taping of the TV Land Icon Awards tomorrow in right. L.A. And I, I don't know for a fact that Betty will be there, but in past years she's been there. There was one year where they honored the Golden Girls. Yeah. So by, by chance that she'll be there, I'm bringing a copy of the book and a Sharpie and, hope, and looking around for her all night. Did you always know how long it would take, or was it kind of like, took longer than you thought it would, or the timeline? It took longer than I thought it would because uh, of the way publishing works, actually. Right. So I did those interviews in 2006, and I started going out with the agent, uh, trying to get a book deal, and we did find several publishers who were interested, but I never could sign the deal, because in the in the deal, in the, in the actual contract... It said that I had to certify that I had rights to use photos and other materials from the show, which uh, I didn't because Disney owns the show. And Disney was for a long time just not answering the question of whether I could use photos. They was uh, couldn't get anybody to go on record and give me an answer. So I actually lost a couple of book deals early on. Uh, and then ended up going with Allison Books, uh, LGBT publisher whom you know. Right. Um, for uh, the Q Guide to the Golden Girls because the approach they wanted to take to inaugurate this Q Guide series was they didn't want to do photo. It was about more like writing essays about 
what particular episodes of the show meant to the gay community. Right. And so I was able to do that book, and it was good because I was able to use all these materials and right. interviews with Betty and B and whatever um, in a different way from how I would ultimately want to do them in this book. Uh, but yet get my name out there and kind of get the first Golden Girls book out there and not have somebody else beat me to it. Right. So that happened in 2006 and then started the process of, at the same time, simultaneously amassing more interviews. I ultimately did over 250, but uh, also finding another publisher and securing the rights. And so that... How did you get the pictures ultimately? Disney ultimately said yes. And did you have to pay for them? Yes. Yeah, I mean, you always have to pay for pictures and photographers, right. you know, that, that's how they make their money on, on royalties off their photos. Right. But you, you can't, you ne- can't necessarily buy pictures with And a lot of times with a deal like this, they'll say, okay, here's your budget for photos. In other words, you don't have to, you know what I mean? You have some sort of help from the publisher in that area. Not often. Not wow. Often. Usually, you know, as an author, you usually get, here's your advance, spend it, spend it wisely. Whatever you have to, even with a book like this. Yeah. Wow. So, so when you're talking to Disney about getting the pictures, it's your... My money. It's your money. So it's not like, well, the publisher only has this much for... Thing. No. Wow. I noticed that you used a lot of shots of the sets without people on them. And I, I, it was fun to look at because you were able to look at the detail. Right. But I also thought there's, there, those were probably cheaper to get than a lot of pictures with people in them. Maybe I'm wrong. But I, it also became sort of beautiful to look at them. I thought it, it seemed like a, a, a way to get some cool images and maybe they're cheaper than pictures with a lot of people in them. But it, it really worked because it, it's, it creates the world. They were, they're sort of fun to look at those sets. Well, and again, if you love the show like we all do, you know those places now. We know the Rusty Anchor. Right. And, you know, you hear the names of some of these places, the Volunteer Vanguard Awards. You can picture that set. I mean, how many shows can you say... When you name an episode that takes place on a, on a swing set, and you can picture it. I mean, that's how iconic some of these things are now. So I always wanted pictures of them, and actually, those pictures weren't anywhere. They weren't available. They just weren't taken by the... You know, normally, most shows, especially back in the day when everything was on film and not digital, they would have an on-set photographer for all or almost every episode. Right. Every or almost every episode. Some, right. Sometimes they wouldn't have it on an episode. And it would just, it would be taken during the filming, and it would be uh, of the actors rehearsing it. You wouldn't get just sets. So that didn't exist. What happened was, I was so lucky with this book, that again, as I said, interviewees open up their phone books and say, who else do you need? Well, I also had interviewees who said, I have materials that you could use that nobody's ever seen. And so, in like, there was a, one director from the show, Lex Passeris, who is a TV historian in his own right. He has rehearsal footage that he's digitized and put on servers all over his house that he's keeping alive. He has some paperwork that, you know, he kept from his days on the show. He has stuff that I would never have thought still existed. He was so generous with me. Um, I Robert, love it because you have some random memos in there that are just so that interesting. Came from him. Yeah. And Robert Spina, who was his friend and also uh, was a production uh, coordinator on the show and also wrote a few episodes, same thing, had some materials. His wife, Kari Handler, is a photographer who, on her own, took pictures of the 100th episode just and kept them and had them all these years and no one had ever seen Right, because you do a wonderful uh, photo collage, I guess, of the, of the 100th. 100th episode. And that's all Kari's work. And so people like that just gave so generously. And then in this case, the, the sets, as you were talking about, the set, the production designer of the Golden Girls was a, a legend in TV and theater. His name is Edward S. Stevenson. 
and his work on in TV went back to the fifties and you know in theater even before that and par- partly in Florida, which is why he was so passionate about what the Golden Girls would look like because right. he worked in Florida, uh, and so he, he lived into his nineties. Only died maybe five years ago, very recently, uh, and he kept a detailed retrospect, a detailed collection, an archive of his work. He and. When he died, his daughter donated it all to the Art Directors Guild here in Studio City, California. And so she generously referred me to the Art Directors Guild. The Art Directors Guild gave me permission to come over and sift through 37 file boxes of, of still shots of sets. I must have gone through 10,000 photos. And then there's drawers of blueprints that didn't even make it to the book. And they're all big. like hard copies of photos. Like, yes, yeah. hard copies of photos. There are drawers full of blueprints. I mean... Ed's work was incredible. And that it was 37 boxes of just Golden Girls. I'm not talking about all his other shows right. that are also wow. there. So that was a lot of work. And then they generously scanned them for me. And our, it was just, people were so helpful. So, yeah, the sets, I, I put them in there because they are things that you, you'll you know when you hear, as I said, the rusty anchor. You can picture what it looks like. Right. Um, and you'll know that set. And you want to see that set without the distraction sometimes of all the extras standing there. Right. But also, you know, just through the generosity of, of Ed and his daughter and the fact that no one, by definition, other than the archivist at the Art Directors Guild and Ed's daughter, Tara, no one currently alive has ever seen those photos up until now. Wow. What a get- What were you like, oh my God, this yeah. is incredible. Every time it happened, I was just, I was blown away. Like, oh my God, another treasure trove and somebody generous enough to let me dig in. Right. Now, with the publisher, this is such a visual book. You Did you have a ton of input into, I, this is the font that I want, this is how I want to do the 100-episode section? No, and you know what? That's did when you have, have a talented one? designer. Yeah. He runs with it. Uh, it. This is done by Headcase Design in Philadelphia. Yeah. Talented, really talented people. And so I didn't have to worry about that at all. I mean, the, I, I would say what photo I wanted to use. Uh, sometimes there were too many photos and... and I would leave it up to them and just say, pick which, sometimes it's a portrait or a landscape right. or whatever. It's literally a layout question. Pick what fits. Other times I would say, please, this is very important. Make sure you fit this photo. Other than that, though, that's all them. It's, I, they did a great job. Wow, all these photos. So how, would, how do you turn in a, what do you turn in to a publisher? The, the text document of the book, mm-hmm. but how do you turn in the pictures and indicate where they go and in this case, what I did is I first turned in the text without photo at all. Right. And then uh, there was a round early on where the editor said, okay, now go through... They edited the manuscript down because having had 10, page, 10 years to do this book, my original manuscript was like a crazy manifesto. It was like 900 pages. Right. So I edited most of it out. And then there was another round of editing where the editor said, okay, this should go, this should go. Is that okay? And so we got it down even shorter. So it was really... The first round was just working on the text and getting it in shape. Um, after that, there was a round where she said, okay, now go through and literally just put a little editor's mark in brackets. Photo goes here. It's of this. It's from this source. Right. And so that I did that. And then literally, physically, I would. Uh, they have an FTP site, where a file transfer site, where you just put all the photos and say, this is the one that matches that note. And you, know, you just link them up. What did you think when you first held it in your hands? There's a video of me doing it. I'm so glad we took it. Frank and I made a periscope of me first holding it in my hands because I heard it, this in the first week of March this year, uh, I heard from my editor that, okay, the book is back from the printer and we just got a box in the office and they look gorgeous. I can't wait for you to see it. I'm going to send you yours. And I was like, great. She meant she was going to have the warehouse send me my copies. And 
so I thought she was overnighting me one. So that was on a Tuesday. I'm like, Wednesday, I'm downstairs asking in the office oh, here. God. In my building, did I get a package? Did I get a package? I did that for like a week, like a pathetic person. Like, where's my package? Where's my package? Until right. I finally found out, oh, she meant she was putting an order through a warehouse. So then the publicist FedExed me one overnight. And so I opened it again. I was like, oh, thank God, this looks great. I had obviously seen the cover. I had seen a dummy of what the size of the book was like. Yes, just a plain white cover. So, gorgeous. so I knew it would be that size, and I knew that would be that cover. But seeing it, having a physical product of 10 years of labor in your hands oh God, is... 10 years. Just indescribable. <laughs> now, did you decide, you know, the pull quotes, there are certain lines from episodes, certain jokes that you did bigger, and you made all those decisions. I didn't make the decision about how, the size of them. But, but what they were going to be. Well, a lot of times the, the designer would come back and say, there is a little bit of space on this page, how about a pull quote? Yeah. And then I would go back, rewatch the episode. Oh, shit. And literally give him five or six options and say... You know, pick either what you think is funniest because I think they're all funny, or which one fits best. Did you have DVDs? Is that how you watch yes, episodes? Yes, yes. All seven, the box sets. Oh, seven years of yes. Wow. What was it like to ask the girls about each other? Because you hear rumors over the years that people didn't get along or did get along or whatever, and I'm sure as an interview you go in not knowing how people are going to be and if any of it's true, and you know how how do you you know approach that? Yeah. You know, you approach it carefully. Uh, I did, I had heard rumors, as everybody has, that B didn't like Betty. Right. So I knew both with B and with Betty that I would be careful in how I asked them about each other. Um, Rue, I knew, was friendly with Betty. As, as I said, I didn't get to talk to Estelle. So I really just was careful about the B and Betty thing. Right. I, and I, I needn't have been, it turns out, because until recently, when Betty went on like Larry King Live, I think it was a few years ago, Betty didn't even acknowledge that there was any problem with B. I remember before this book, I did a story for TV Guide where I interviewed Betty. And the editor, you know, was insistent that I ask her about the feud with B. This was for the 2003 Golden Girls reunion special on Lifetime. Right. And so I did. I asked Betty at the end. I said, okay, I have to apologize. My, this is in 2003, not for this book. My editor wants, insists that I ask you this question, you know, was there a problem reuniting with B. Arthur because she, you know, had problems with you or whatever? I forget how I phrased it, but it was something direct like that. Right. And Betty just laughed and said, ooh, someone's been reading the tabloids. And I remember her answer almost verbatim. She said, while it's true that B. may have been less than thrilled to see me again, I saw her in the makeup room and I sneaked up behind her and gave her a big hug and she kind of melted into my arms. And you know what? I believe that because that's what B. was like. Even if she, even if she wanted to be, as I said, there's that eighty percent right. wanted to give you a hard time, and that twenty percent mush ball. And I think that probably a wave of nostalgia did overtake her when Betty gave her a hug. And I think that she probably did melt into Betty's arms that day. So I knew that was the level I was dealing with. Right. B could not have for as many times as I've heard anecdotal stories about B saying, "Oh, Betty's a pain in the ass." I, I think that she's Betty. B thought Betty was a little bit of a phony because of the sweetness to her. Right. And so as many times as B would say that about Betty in stories that I had heard secondhand, she never said it to me. She was, and that's what I heard about them on the set. They were always so professional on the set. I don't know what happened off the set. These stories may be true where B said in her private life that she didn't like Betty, but on the set, they made sure that they made a good show and did what it took to make a good show. And even people who would tell me stories that in her personal life, B said things about Betty, if they worked on the show, they would almost always tell me the same thing. When they would go to a dinner, the dinner break between the two show, the two tapings of the show on a Friday night, 
B would look for Betty. They'd be in their white bathrobes, covering their, protecting their wardrobe. B would look for Betty, and the two of them would shuffle off in their little slippers and white robes off to dinner together, and they, by hand in hand. So it's like they knew to kind of find each other and stay linked. And I think that was for the good of the show. They knew that they had to come off like best friends. They needed to make this, the lines and the performances as good as they could, and so they were going to do what they had to while they were there. And Rue was going along with everybody. As far as I know, I don't think Rue, even though Rue had a longer standing relationship with B because of having been on Maud together, right. I don't think Rue's friendship with B was strong through the Golden Girls era and after because Rue said about B, she's a tough person to get to know. She's very private. That's the word people use about B a lot, private. She's very shy and guarded, as I said. So Rue actually bonded a lot with Betty because I think they both were so smart. And you know, they talked about how they would come in and out of scenes and they would do this word game where they'd throw each other the next letter of the alphabet and you'd have to come up with a word that started that on your way in to do the scene. So it's like their brains were so spinning that they needed extra work to do in, in addition to remembering their lines. And they both were off book really soon in the process where B was on book to the last minute. So I think just Rue and Betty had a very similar intellect, a very similar process. They just were simpatico. Not and uh, Rue uh, didn't not get along with B, but I just don't think that they had like a close bond. Right, people would think they had. Oh, they worked on two shows together. Right. When you, but B said that it was a difficult time when she was setting up the interview. Did mm-hmm. you? Did she touch on why when you were interviewing her? She did. I mean, first of all, in the first season of the show, both Betty's and B's mothers died. Right. So B's mother was sick and then died in the in the first season. Uh, B still had residual. I think. Bad feelings about her breakup with her husband earlier. I don't, you know, her breakup with her husband had been years earlier, but I think she still was very much affected by that. Um, and Betty had had this love story with Alan Ludden. So I think that, you know, contrasting that, she comes in feeling like, oh, I had a, a failed marriage, and here's this woman talking about her beloved husband. And uh, as having any kind of conflict in terms of working style with Betty and then having the sorrow of your mother dying and hitting all at the same time, I can see why it wasn't a happy time for her. Yeah. That makes sense. I wrote a bunch of stuff down when I was writing it. Harvey Firestein contributes yeah, to the book. Uh, yeah, he's, he's he writes great. about Estelle because he worked with her on Turf Song Trilogy. Yes. How? Because you knew you didn't have Estelle, so you're like, okay, what can I do to sort of write about Estelle? And then you had the idea to reach out to Harvey. I did. Well, you know, that actually came about just really through the book process and making everything parallel because in the early days of the research in 2006, I spoke to Estelle's two sons, her caretaker, Paul, her friends, Richard, Michael, a whole bunch of, you know, Estelle always went out with a bunch of gays. She called her five fag minimum. Right. Estelle was always out of the town with a bunch of gays. Right. She loved the gay community. She, having five, done Torch Song, five fag minimum. she called it her five fag minimum. Um, and you know, she having done Torch Song trilogy, having been in the theater in New York, right. In the AIDS era, when she became a really passionate, you know, AIDS research fundraiser, she was a wonderful woman. So she loved the gay community. So I got to talk to you know, her, her two sons and then all these gay guys in her life. So I felt like I got a good sense of her for the original book. But when I was doing this book, what I wanted to do is run an interview I did with the actress and then a little postscript of what they did after the Golden Girls and then a small tribute from somebody they worked with. So there's a tribute to Rue from Leslie Jordan. There's a tribute to B from Billy Goldenberg, her accompanist in her one-woman show. Right. And for Estelle, though, I didn't have the chunk to make it parallel of the in-person interview. I had what she did after the show, um, but so I really wanted then to get somebody who really loved her and knew her. 
and Harvey was the best person for that. I mean, he gave her her break. They had, as he talks about it, so funny, they had a very mother and son relationship with all of its pluses and minuses. Right. They would yell at each other. It was tumultuous. They would yell at each other and fight over scenes and whatever. And he talked about how she was in some ways a pain in the ass, but what a wonderful maternal presence she was. And how he admired her work in AIDS fundraising. And, I mean, so his uh, tribute to her runs four or five pages in this book because he had such in-depth, wonderful things to say that I felt that I felt good as an author that we balanced. I didn't want to do short shrift to Estelle just because she right. was too ill and whatnot, that I couldn't talk to her. She right. deserved as good a you know, tribute as And she got a lovely, a lovely one. Um, how much did... W- cheesecake. Was there a time... Because we all associate it with right. it. Is it in a ton of episodes or is it just here and there? Talk to me about cheesecake. Cheesecake came... Uh, that happened accidentally. Uh, there was an early on episode where it just wasn't working and... Uh, Susan Harris was actually flying to New York. She wasn't around. She wasn't around for a lot of the day-to-day. Right. Uh, and the director, Terry Hughes, called her right before she got on the plane, remember, in the days before cell phones, and said, this episode isn't working. We need something. We need some kind of scene for the women to kind of thematically congeal what's going on, to, for the whole thing to gel, for these, just to have a moment where they sit and discuss. And so... She kind of stole from herself. She was getting on the plane, and she thought of a scene that she had done earlier on Soap, where uh, Catherine Hellman's character, Jessica Tate, leans over a mirror and sees how horrifying it is. And they have the same conversation. She and her sister, Mary Campbell, have the same conversation that the girls would then how have. How horrifying what is? Oh, the... When, no, no, when your face. Because oh, if, you, okay. if you lean into a mirror and face right, down, right, right. your face falls. Right. But if you, lay, if you lie on your back, and you, right. you, your face falls back and you look facelifted. So Susan wrote a version of that. It's not that similar, but it's, it takes off on that idea. And she wrote it on the plane. She writes everything longhand. And by the time she was off the plane, she had it. And I think she faxed it back to them and they incorporated it into the episode. And she had them sit around. You know, okay, we need to have them sit around doing something. So she wrote in that they were sitting eating cheesecake. Eventually, you know, they, there are a lot of scenes where they eat other things other than cheesecake. They, right. They're into ice cream. They, there's a cake in the refrigerator. It's, it's watching the, all the episodes again. You're struck by It's so funny. They snack on a lot of things, but cheesecake is the one that's stuck in all our minds. Right. Um, but those became known as the cheesecake scenes because that became known as the moment where this show would hit its stride. Right. Where the four of them could sit around, tell stories, do bits. You could get reactions from the four women around a table with the camera and you didn't have to have them. Like, on it was a, like the diner scenes on Seinfeld. Well, and right. But it begat things like the diner right. scenes on Seinfeld and the diner scene in Sex and the City. And, you know, it begat some of those things that inspired them. Uh, but what they learned about Golden Girls is that on a lot of sitcoms, you don't have such accomplished comic actors like B. Arthur and Betty White and Ruin. And so you need to have them physically doing something. You need to give them bits of business. You need to have your action. They're walking down the street. They're cleaning the apartment, whatever. You need to give them something to do. They found with the Golden Girls that they, there's such a wealth of comic material just on Bee's looks and, and Betty's you know, blank reactions right. or saying all of story that only she can tell that they could just plop them at a table and they didn't have to have them do, up doing yeah. crazy things. And so that became the moment where they, they really... I mean, B didn't like them. She thought of them as kind of treading water and a segue till the next bit of business. But the writers loved them because it was a moment to take a step back and breathe and do jokes that are on on story. It still advances the story, but you don't have to, you know, send them off to a restaurant or send them off to confront the boss. 
they could just sit and talk. Right, and they were sort of the heart and soul of the show. That's they what were. people wanted to just be with those women. Right. Um, there was a gay character in the pilot that kind of got cut out. You write about that. And yeah. If I were to watch the pilot now, he he's there, he's but there. he's not really there. He's there, but it's weird how yeah. well he's there. Because Coco, the gay house boy, had right. actually been in the idea that NBC presented to Susan Harris. Because the show came about in an unusual way. It wasn't pitched by a writer, as most shows are. NBC and Brandon Tartikoff, specifically the president at the time, had the idea for this show based on having seen Selma Diamond and, and uh, Doris Roberts do a presentation at an NBC Fall preview event. Right. And then also he had watched How to Marry a Millionaire with his niece and was struck by, oh, three women in the city making it and the camaraderie of women. So he had percolated this idea for a while. They presented it to Susan Harris. She went off and did it. In the idea they presented to her, they said, and they'd have these women will have a gay houseboy. I was really surprised to learn that at first because even today, it might be a little hard to get a gay character on TV. Back in 1985, wow, would that have been hard to get a gay character on TV. Right. You would think the network would be resistant, not the ones pushing it. Right. And it was the height of the AIDS crisis and people were afraid of gay people. There was a terrible backlash against gays. People were uncomfortable with them on television. There were a couple portrayals that were making it, like Hill Street Blues had a character played by Charles Levin who went on to play this character. Right. So there were a few, but it wasn't easy. And Hill Street Blues was a prestige drama who had a little more leeway. This was going to be a comedy. So I was surprised to learn that NBC had, had wanted it. Uh, what ended up happening, though, is that when they, they cast Charles Levin, again, he had been on Hill Street Blues playing a gay character, and they then came to the t- to the pilot taping and they had five characters because they had intended Sophia Estelle to be just recurring. They would establish that she lived at Shady Pines and then, you know, oh, Shady Pines burned down, she's going to come visit, but they didn't necessarily think she'd be living in the house. They're, they could always have written it that she went off to another retirement home later. Right. Uh, but she killed it at the pilot taping. Estelle was such a find and the audience went so crazy for these outrageous things she said that it was clear that they needed more of her. Right. And at the same time, I mean, Coco probably did really well at the pilot taping too. We don't know because we don't see most of his material. It's on the cutting room floor. But the show went for 27, 28 minutes with the laugh spread, as they call it. Right. So and Something you, had to go. Something had to go. You have to get that pilot down to, you know, at the time it was probably 22 and a half. Now it's 21 minutes. Right. So five, at least five minutes of material has to go. And then looking forward... You're going to have that problem every week. If you're trying to service five characters right. and give them all something substantial to do, it's not going to be easy in, in, in 22 minutes. If you're servicing four characters, obviously easier. So they made the decision that Coco would go right after the pilot. And I do think it's the right decision as much as it would have been interesting to have a gay character on the show. It would have been a very different show. Who knows if we'd still be talking about the show if there had been a fifth character that maybe mucked up the chemistry. Who knows? But I also think that part of the theme of the show was that these women stick together for a lot of reasons, including economic reasons. And if you keep a houseboy there who's waiting on them hand and foot, it's hard to believe that they're going to have trouble making rent. Or that right. They, they were, need to be doing they their need own to be doing this, stuff. They need to be surviving on their own yes. scene and really out there doing it. Yeah. If they have somebody waiting on them, it makes them a little bit more upper class. We have a little bit less jeopardy to the story. Right. Like. Makes sense. So, yeah, the poor Charles Levin ended up uh, out of a job. But yeah. the reason why you still will see him in the pilot is there were scenes... They did go back and reshoot some stuff without him. 
So they actually, and as I said, they cut as much of him as they could, not as a personal affront to him, but so that right. there would be less of a character that they were, didn't, weren't going to be establishing. But there were scenes they couldn't cut him out of, and particularly the opening scene. Dorothy, if you remember, comes in through the back door into the kitchen and is complaining about being a substitute teacher and about how, how all the kids are so horrible. Well, we haven't met any, anybody else yet. The only person in the kitchen at that moment is Coco. She's telling him about being a substitute teacher. Right. We haven't met Rose or Blanche, and Sophia hasn't come because the house hasn't burned down yet. So they couldn't cut that. They couldn't cut him, and they couldn't retake it with anybody else. There was nobody else. So he's mostly in that scene. There's a couple moments where he goes through. It almost looks like he pops up out of nowhere. And you're like, who's that again? Right. Because he's in it as little as they could have him. Right. What's interesting is it's a show about women, and Susan Harris was, was a big uh, part of the formation of it, but there's not a lot of women behind the scenes. And the Golden Girls, like, writers' names, men, 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 lots of gay guys, but not a lot not of... Not even that many gay guys. Uh, maybe it's just that I knew it's a few right. of them. It, it always seems it, that, and that's yeah. a funny thing. But it's um, not that many women. No, it's not. Uh, first of all, the gay thing. I always assumed, watching the show, that there'd be a bunch of gay guys who wrote the show. And then I got I talked to Mark Cherry, one of the ones who was gay on the right. show. And he said the same thing, because he was a fan up until he got hired in season five, his first job. Right. So he had been a fan for seasons one through four, and he always said the same thing. He expected it was going to be a big room this full of queens. This is the Abbey. Yeah. And he said when he got there, and he and his writing partner, Jamie Wooten, were the only ones, the only gays, he, and they were talking about the boxing match that had been on the night before. He's like, have I walked into the wrong room? He couldn't yeah. believe. But there's an alchemy of, of straight men writing jokes. You put them in B. Arthur's mouth, and it they comes out like, like a gay man. Right. But, uh, yeah, so there weren't that many gay men. There had been a few in each regime of the show, maybe you know one or two at a time, but not a whole lot, and not many women. Susan Harris, the creator, obviously, in the first four years, uh, there were five people who ran the show. Two were women. Four really ran the show, and then there was one writer who was like a step under them, but she was also Winnie Hervey, a wonderful writer who had a lot of clout there. So, uh, you know, uh, Kathy Spear and Winnie Hervey were the two women on in the beginning era uh, years, and... There were a couple women who came in as freelancers. Harriet Helberg, Simon Helberg's mother, uh, co-wrote with her husband the 100th episode. And then Gail Parent was on in the later years. And other than that, not much. Was it ever a thing? Was it ever a thing? Did any of the actresses say, why aren't there more women? Like, was it a thing that was was bothersome to anybody? You know, oh, I'm sorry. There was like a Pat Shea. uh, There was a couple other freelancers I'm just thinking of now. But yeah, yeah. In terms of the staff, there weren't. Um, The women, I I know they remarked about it when it came time for directing. And so they must have said it about writing, too. Writing, TV writing is, is was, particularly then and still is, sexist, racist, ageist. I mean, it's mostly white men who always wrote for shows. Even today, it's mostly white men writing for shows. It's being rectified to a great extent now. Yeah. Um, But women still have a harder time. Yeah. And they certainly did then. I know that the actresses remarked about it when it came time for directors because for the beginning days of the show, they had Paul Bogart. Then they had Jim Drake, who took over in this interim. Then they had Terry Hughes for years, who was wonderful, a man. When he left, they started then auditioning new directors and and working with some who then would stick around and a few who would only come in as a trial. And it's not even that they didn't work out, but they had other shows and they couldn't stay. In the course of the series, two episodes of 180 were directed by women, two different women. And uh, Judy Pioli Askins and Zane Busby. And So two episodes out of 180, 180 were directed by women. Wow. And I know that B said something to Zane about, like, it's great having a broad around here. And I know that both of them, Judy and Zane, both said, the women remarked to me, it's great having a woman. 
I really love working with you. You're really talented. So they tried to support these women directors. Right. Whether they hoped they would stay. Sometimes they did. But like right. Zane had another job. She was directing Blossom, actually. Right. Um, and... And let's face it, Blossom needed her more. Blossom needed her more. <laughs> but the women would also just do it because they were just happy there was a woman in power, yeah. a woman in charge. You talked about the gay writers. There was one writer, Rick Kopp. Yes. He's quoted as saying that he didn't talk about being gay and the writers. Like, he was closeted. Yeah. And that surprised me as well that it was because you think it's just going to be the Abbey with typewriters. Yeah. Most of the writers, the gay writers that I can think of. Well, okay. I'm thinking of five off the top of my head. And I... Uh, I'm trying to think if there were any others. Three of them, and they were on in the earliest years, were closeted at the time. So Stan Zimmerman and Jim Berg were a writing team in the early years. Right. Uh, and then Rick Kopp is gay. His writing partner, David A. Goodman, who is now the showrunner of Family Guy, is straight. So they, you know, they wrote together. Uh, so And Rick was in the closet at the time. I remember Stan and Jim telling me a funny story that actually is not in this book they told me earlier on. That they... Uh, first of all, Estelle recognized the gays the moment she saw them. She'd call them over and be like, hey, you're one of us, aren't you? And they'd be like, how did you know that? So Estelle... She was the biggest fag hag of all of them. She was a huge fag hag. So That's Est- interesting. Estelle would befriend the gays the moment she saw them. So they loved her for that. But he, he said he remembered... Uh, Stan Zimmerman told me the story, that, and Jim Berg too, that when they were on staff, a writer, I forget which straight writer, came up to them and said, you're Lavenders, aren't you? And they were like holy shit, is that some new gay term? Like, how did he know, first of all? He's this straight guy. Turns out that's the NYU sports team. Oh, my gosh. And he meant you also, you're also, you're also an NYU alumnus, aren't you? Right. And they're so gay they didn't even know what the NYU sports well, team was. So they went there. And they went there. Yeah. So yeah, they actually went they there. accidentally outed themselves when they were like, yes, how did you know? He's yeah. Like, no, I meant the sports team. Wow. So that's like, the, I, you know, again, the mid-80s, I was a teenager, so I don't remember the climate I wasn't considering coming out. Right. I don't know what it was like to be a little older in 1985 and come out. I know that AIDS was certainly scaring the hell out of everybody. Right. But you watch Golden Girls and you just feel like it had to be the most gay-friendly, you know, environment. But it was, even then it was a little different. It was. Now, Mark, Cherry, and Jamie Wooten were out when they got their job. Um, And first of all, that almost created a problem. Because one of the network executives who was homophobic, not anybody I interviewed, just a minor executive, uh, called and said, we don't want to hire two gay lovers to be on this show. What if they have a fight? What if they break up? Were they a couple? No. Right. That's the irony. They weren't even a couple. They, they were just, just gay guys who were writing parties. They, they, they leave the meeting and stand their dicks in each other. Exactly, because that's what gays do. Like, they're course. not capable of not fucking of each other if they're left alone. I mean, come on. Right. So... And to his credit, the showrunner, the straight showrunner, Mark Sopkin, stood, stood up for them and said, that's ridiculous. First of all, they're not a couple. And, right. Know, and so it smoothed over. But that just shows what attitudes were like in 1989 or 90 when they wow. started. So even then. Um, and, and they did feel, as Mark Cherry says in the book, he, he, Mark doesn't feel like he walks around, uh, none of us does, feel like we walk around all day with a, sh- a shirt that says, I'm a gay writer, I'm a gay plumber, I'm a gay electrician. Sure. But that's how they saw him. And so every once in a while there'd be a gay joke or a gay storyline and all eyes would turn him. Is that okay? Is that offensive? Is that acceptable? I think that's true of any minority on any right Yes, staff. it is. It is. And, and in a way that's good because yeah. they should be concerned and ask you, you know, okay, as yeah. a member of this group. But it also makes you feel very singled out. Of course. So, you know, he, he would say, I was constantly reminded that I see myself as writer and they saw me as gay guy and then writer. Right. Interesting. Now, you talked to Cindy Fee. Yes. Tell us about Cindy Fee. I love the story of Cindy Fee. Cindy Fee, who I, yeah, I only found her recently, actually. 
Um, she was a late addition to the she's book. She's a late addition to the book. Cindy Fee is the singer who obviously sings the theme song so memorably. And uh, she that song had uh, had been a hit for Andrew Gold. Yeah, I think I remember it was 1978. Right. Mm-hmm. It was late I remember 70s. right before it was the theme. Yeah, every once in a while you'll be in a bar or you'll yeah. hear it on the radio, hear his version play. And uh, the, when the producers were looking for a theme song, they originally were thinking of Bette Midler's uh, You Gotta Have Friends, right. which is not written by Bette. I forget who it's written by, two, two guys. Um, and so they investigated with the publishing rights to that, and it turned out to be too expensive. So they sat around and brainstormed, and someone thought, hey, what about the show Thank You for Being a Friend? It was a, a hit. It charted, but it wasn't a number one. It might be perfect for us. The theme, the, certainly the words, or me, yeah. what, the theme of the show. And so they did license that. And then you know they didn't license Andrew Gold's version. They were going to have a session singer come in and do it. And again, you always want to do that because you're going to cut it down to a whatever length. Right. For and for credits. this, it makes sense to have a female voice. You have a female voice, but Andrew Gold's song has several stanzas and right. several choruses. And they, they wanted a certain length and specificity to it. So they they... Hired a session singer. Cindy Fee was at the time doing commercial jingles and other things like like theme songs. She had done a couple theme songs in I think the pilot season before that in 1984. She did a, a few this year in 1985. She had done a couple of memorable commercials. And so to her, this was just another gig. You show up, you're there. You know, they book the studio for like an hour. You show up, you do the t- do it a couple times, and you you leave, and you never think of it again. You go do the next session. You, as she said, like I never thought. I never knew what the show was at the time. I didn't think it was going to make it because I've done pilots before. And you, you just put it out of your mind. Uh, she went in. She did the song once. And really, she nailed it so much that they almost were not going to have her do it again. And they said, I'll do it one more time just so, to be safe. So she ended up singing it twice. Took 20 to 30 minutes at most. And she was out of there. Didn't think about it again. Months later, one of the producers sent her a t-shirt that they'd made up that said The Golden Girls. And she was like, oh, that hasn't happened before. That's the first unusual thing that's happened with this project. Right. But even so, wasn't really thinking about it. Now it has put her kids through college. It's put her kids through college. 20, yep. 30 minutes of work. Yeah. 20, that she did on a random weekday in 1985. And here we are 31 years later. That just blows my mind. put her kids through college. Yeah. Rue took her clothes. Yes. More than, she took more of her clothes than anyone else. Yes. Her, her friend, Michael J. LaRue, who's also her executor, said that... Uh, she had it stipulated in her contract that she could keep it all. I, I'm some of the other that ones. she could keep it all. I, yeah. I, I mean, maybe she did, but and, and he's. I did go to her apartment for that archive of American Television interview, and I the apartment looked pretty stuffed. Yeah. So maybe she she did keep it all, but wow, that would have been a lot of clothes. Uh, more so than the other people. The other women at the end were permitted to take a bunch of things, like right. you know. On a lot of shows, that happens. Oh, you, yeah, sure, take six or seven things. Right. They're not going to let you have it all, but you know, if you go in and you sweet talk them, you'll walk out with it. You know, ten things. Yeah, and that's probably all any of them wanted anyway. Right. Did you get any souvenirs from the set, or did you get to hold anything, or did you see anything? What's the coolest physical thing you saw? People have sent me a few things who worked on the show. Uh, Peter Bate, who was a director on the show, gave me a, a deck of Golden Palace playing cards that had wow. been a crew gift one uh, one year. I'm trying to think what else people have given me. People have given me little things from the show. Yeah. Golden Palace, did you... What was your strategy with it? You wanted to write about it. It was the spinoff. What's interesting to me is it aired on another network. It aired on CBS rather than NBC, Which yes. Which is weird. And it had Betty and Rue. And Estelle. And Estelle. And B popped up. For one two-part episode. Yeah. Uh, so what was your strategy in, in terms of doing dealing with it? Well, my strategy... You know, I'm a Virgo and a completist... And so I would have loved to have covered it. However, 
when you're writing a book with only a certain number of pages, yeah, and there's already 180 episodes to cover, and you have a lot of stories to talk about about all the episodes. The last thing I was looking for is another 22 episodes to cover. And also, as a as a casual fan, it's not the same. It's not the fucking Golden Girls. I don't want it in my book. Well, <laughs> even though I've never seen a well, single episode, it's but there's something about me that's like no. Mm. Well, it's interesting you say I don't want it in my book because. Uh, what I found, the, the real thing that, that convinced me not to bother right. was that it aired just in 1992-93 in, on CBS, and then once, at around the turn of the century, Lifetime did a stunt where they showed all the episodes one time through. And other than that, nobody's seen them. So it's not the same thing where any set photos would mean anything to anybody. Or if you said, ah, remember that time Miles stopped by the hotel? No, no one remembers that time. You remember the time that, you know, Eddie Albert was a guest star? And No, because people have seen that at most twice in the last 25 years. So it wasn't worth trying to dig up those stories and kill myself to fit them into a book when nobody was going to care. Nobody was going to care. And did Lifetime realize when they ran them, oh, it's not the same? Did I think they, they did because I don't think the returns were what they expected. Yeah. Which I would have thought people were going to tune in as a curiosity. Yeah. I don't think that people knew it was happening when it happened. They didn't, it, pro- they, it probably wasn't promoted as a big deal. Hey, watch this. It's only going to happen once, one time only. The, it, I, then people, people probably would have tuned in out of curiosity. The Golden Girls is those four women. Yes. Not popping by for one episode. It's not the same. Right. Yeah, so and, I've laid it down. And then the other thing that I, people said this so f- uh, were so funny about it in the book, including Mark Cherry, the thesis of the Golden Girls is that you will be happy in your later years if you stick with your friends. You'll have a great house. You'll have a great life. You'll date. You'll have each other. Everything will be fine. You'll even make it through the financial tough times. Then the story of Golden Palace is then somebody, one of them will leave you. The rest of the three of you will have to sell your house Move into a hotel where you do backbreaking work well into your 80s, and life won't isn't so great. Right. And it's like no one wanted that message spoiled for them. Who no. wants to see these old w- women that we were so happy had each other and had security now have to kill themselves cleaning toilets at a hotel? Right. It was just a bad idea. No, and that basic theme of like your friends will be there for you until they're not. Boy, does that resonate the older you get. Yeah. And boy, boy, is it sort of comforting and. And not sort of quaint and cliche or no. whatever. It, you know, it's like, it's, it's a lifeline in a way. Right. We all, I mean, especially that's why the show, I think, when it comes down to it, yes, there's witty repartee and yes, there's beautiful clothing or whatever. But I think the real appeal to the, particularly the LGBT community is these are four women who built a surrogate family out of their friends. Only two of them were phys- were biologically related. Right. And we do the same thing. And that's the fantasy that your friends are so good. That they are, you're going to live together and love together for the rest of your yeah. lives. Is there an episode that makes you cry more than others? It depends upon when you catch me. I really love the episode where, in terms of being touching, where Dorothy's brother Phil dies. Because Estelle, Sophia's character, is hiding her feelings through humor. Phil is the cross-dresser. The cross-dresser. Yeah. Sophia was hiding her feelings through humor throughout the episode. And being funny, so it's fun for us. But you get to see her finally grieve for not only uh, her son, and but she finally confronts the cross-dressing thing and talks about, like, basically a queer son, whether he wasn't gay, but he was queer. Sure. And did I make him that way? What did I do? All the guilt that you know is in there with gay, parents of gay kids, whether they are cool with it or not, there's a core of it somewhere. And really be real. 
And it's it just takes, even though I know it's coming, every time I watch the episode, it just takes me by surprise because Estelle plays that so beautifully. She goes from cracking jokes to really hitting the emotion in that last beat, and then you and then it ends, and then you're left with, "Whoa, what just happened?" Is there a line that makes you laugh out loud every time you watch it, no matter how many times you watch it? You know, I I'm such a pun lover apparently, and I never knew I was. Little things like <laughs> in uh, the episode where. Blanche's boyfriend, Stevie, the ball player, is about to leave her to go play baseball in, in Japan. Mm-hmm. And Rose walks in, and the other three have just talked about it, and they're all dejected. And Rose says, oh, why are you so upset? And, and uh, Dorothy says, Stevie's leaving her for Tokyo, Rose. <laughs> and she said, well, that's understandable. She is a big radio personality. <laughs> that makes me laugh out loud. <laughs> yes, because it's so dumb. It's so dumb. And then the other one, where Dorothy is, has the gambling addiction. Yeah. And she says something like, and, you know, I've done this, and I've done this, and I've learned to, and I've lived with the temptations. And Rose says, you lived with the temptations? <laughs> you think you know a person, and they've lived with a major musical act. Just... Because you know where it's you going. You know where it's going, think, and Betty sells it. What what is as a writer, what is so uh, amazing about that show and, and sort of in, informative is you know those characters so well that when a setup happens, you know the area that they're going to go to, yeah, and, it and it's so delicious when they do. Yeah, and then they do it so well and so perfectly. You're like, oh, Rose is going to say something like this. And then she does, and it's and even, even better. better than that's you, that's exactly that's what's it. so delicious about it. It's the anti- like they get a laugh like three times through the process of the joke because yeah. first you're anticipating, oh, they're going to go here. I know it's yeah. going to be great. Then you see the, they're winding up with the look on Rose's face, and like often the look they give while they're waiting for the previous laugh to die down. Then the joke, which comes out better than you even thought it yeah. was going to be, and then the reaction from the next person. It's like they milk so many laughs out of each beat. Yeah, it was lightning in a bottle. What did B tell you about the slow burn? She said something about, like, people say I have a slow burn, but it's just the way I react. And B was very funny. Again, if I said I was going to categorize her thinking or feeling, you'd have to categorize her as feeling. Because literally, I remember she said to me, like, people get into a comedy and they think that they have to, like, be wacky and act like they're from Mars. And that's not comedy. That's just not believable. She said, the secret to comedy is you say shit like you believe it. She said that was the secret to acting. Just say the shit like you believe it. And, of course, that's deceptively simple. It's easier said than done. But to her, that's what it was. sort of Just like in the moment, say it like you believe it. But she didn't put thought into and get into her head about, what if I did it this way? I mean, there were times, of course, where she'd go to the writers and say, you know, what if I did this or what if I did that? There were a couple of times where she did physical reactions. Most of the time they worked. A couple of times I remember producers telling me she did this weird physical thing that we had to talk her out of doing. She did it once in rehearsal, and we were like, no, that didn't work. Yeah, like anybody, she was fallible. Sure. But I think she was doing things that came to her in the minute, in, in the moment. I don't think that she was overthinking an actor's process. I think she probably thought that of the, all that actory stuff as bullshit. As yeah. I said, she couldn't take bullshit. In her mind, you say the shit like you mean it. Yeah, and it was authentic. And it, it was, was authentic. authentic. Did the show know it was a gay classic when it was on? Did it know how much it was speaking to gay people when it was on? Or did I, they realize later? Uh, I think they realized mostly later. And as I said, a lot of the writers were straight. And also, when you're on a sitcom on a writing staff, you're so sequestered from the rest of the world. The irony is, here you're supposed to be writing about what you observe in the world, and you spend so much time in the room that you feel like you lose track of pop culture in a way. Like, right. You're not home watching TV at night. You're still at work at 9 o'clock at night. And so I think that often I, when I talk to anybody who's on a sitcom, they 
tell me about audience reaction, almost like it's a surprise that it happened. And it, and it happened, oh my God, it, you know, I was out in public and somebody came up to me and said, this means so much to me. And I, I had written that a month ago and I, had, I didn't know when it was going to air and I, I couldn't believe that they... So there's always people who I think are a little surprised because they feel disconnected being locked in the writer's room. So that, that happens. But I do know that they certainly knew that they were being brave with some of their episodes. That right. They did with a lot of... There was a gay wedding, wasn't there? There was Clayton's gay wedding. Right. They earlier on had had Dorothy's lesbian friend, Jean. They had Rose uh, take an AIDS test and wait 72 hours for the yeah. response, which was only this, really the second sitcom after Designing Women to tackle AIDS. Um, so they knew that they were doing some brave stuff. And they knew they had license to do it. Because not only were they a hit show, so the censors would be a little more forgiving... But they knew that they had old ladies, and then when you have old ladies say things, you can just get away with more. Right. People are less offended when an old lady says something outrageous, even political. Right, or something be. maybe a little bigoted or a little close-minded. You can, you're like, well, it's a generational or thing. Or the reverse, open-minded. Yeah. If, you, if you're a conservative audience and there's an old lady out there saying something very liberal, you might accept it a well, little Well, she's more. lived a lot of life. She's, she's lived probably... a life, and if she feels that way, if she feels that gay guy's not so bad, well, maybe, okay, right. I can let that go. I won't have to say, I hate gay guy, you know, in their response. Yeah. So I think they knew they had license, and so they, they were conscious of that. And then they did get fan mail. And they did get a little hate mail. You, Jamie Wooten shared a hate mail yes, letter with you. Hilarious. That was first of all the spelling. The spelling is great. Well, it's like straight out of Appalachia. That's, it made me laugh because one of the words is embarrassed, and they couldn't spell embarrassed. But that's one of the words that I always struggle with. I always spell it wrong, so I'm like, oh, I'm just like this hit. Yeah, but I think you probably get the e and the m in the right order. That's you true. Know? That is true. But it was like. You fags and like it fags was. Fags are the it meant to say lousiest and it said loinest. Yeah, fags are the loiniest garbage yet. They should be gassed. It was I, one I word that was so off that I couldn't tell what they word were they were going an for. Yeah, to the world. They but it had in America the beautiful stand. Right, that was the kicker. That it, it was hate mail sent to Jamie. Yeah, and, uh, and it had in America the beautiful stand. A lot of times the producer, I don't know how much hate mail they got, and yeah. to put it in perspective, they were very funny. I don't know. Uh, I think the producers kept the hate mail from most of the writers and certainly from the women. Yeah. And what they definitely kept from the women is something funny that Jamie said, which is that whatever amount of hate mail we got, it wasn't that much. We got way more commenting on B's hair, usually a critique, usually saying, this is how you should fix it. And they never told B. They never told B. What was weird about her hair? I mean, compared to other people's hair, they just didn't, never found... People had a lot of opinions on B's hair. That's so interesting. I love that the show would take shots at designing women. Yes, Talk to me about that. You know, it's interesting when you, you know, the, the, the Golden Girls premiered in 1985 as a show about four women. Designing Women premiered in 1986 as a show about four women. So oh, they, they, were, they were that close. I thought year, there were a few more years. No, one year okay. apart. So there were going to be inevitable comparisons. Right. Obviously, the Golden Girls was a big hit in season one. So people are going to say, anytime that there's a similar show, they're going to say it's a copycat. And they're going to be pitted against each other. And I think the Golden Girls were just playing into that. Right. Like, okay, you know, here's this show that everybody's saying is gunning for us, and let's play into this kind of fake rivalry. I mean, there was no real rivalry. Nobody on the Golden Girls disliked designing women. I mean, they all talked about, like, oh, it was funny that we put in these gags or these jokes. But Right. And Linda Bloodworth Thomason, the creator of Designing Women, you know, gave me a blurb for this book about how much she loved the Golden Girls. So awesome. she certainly didn't have any problem. Was, yeah, it's all... You know, they all laughed all the way to the bank. Yeah. Um, Christopher Lloyd was one of the writers. Is that Christopher Lloyd, Modern no. Family? No. no. Oh, yeah, Modern Family, yes. It is Christopher Lloyd, Modern Family. Right? Most people usually say, is that Christopher Lloyd, the actor from Taxi? That's why I was no, saying No, but that. It's one of, he's one he of the... Yes. Yeah, this, uh, yeah, yes. And then, you know, he comes from... David Lloyd is his father, was right. a Mary Tyler Moore show writer. So he kind of came from a great pedigree for writing and proved his mettle on this show 
you know, rose through the ranks really well, wrote some really great episodes, uh, and yeah, then went on to Frasier and now co-creator of Modern Family. Right. And then there was Mitchell Hurwitz who did Arrested Development. Mitchell Hurwitz was being groomed by Whit Thomas Harris, the production company, to be an executive, a development executive. Right. But his passion was writing and he was very funny and they finally gave him his shot and boy did he run with it. Now, you talk to the art director and the set people. It's, it, apparently some of the plants from the show are still alive. Alive. Yes. They're lasting longer than the cast. I know. There's plants. Potted plants. Potted plants we saw on television on the Golden Girls that are still, are alive, still alive on the earth. Yes. That's amazing. Uh, the, as I said, Edward Stevenson runs a uh, prop shop on, right. in Hollywood, and his daughter now runs it. And I believe that some of the plants are now there. The, the set designers had told me, yeah, th- some of the plants were fake. A lot of them were fake. But they did bring in some real ones. And uh, the real ones. So several of those real ones are still alive. I love that real plants are full of. I posted yeah. that I was interviewing you online. Let me see what people want me to ask you. Okay, let's see. I know one of them was like who got along and all that stuff, which you sort of talked about. Um, my my friend John Michael noticed as a fan that sometimes, you know, people watch TV so intensely now that there's like, wait, she went to college there. Like there were continuity things oh, from episodes. Terrible continuity problems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Talk to me about that. Was the show? Overly concerned with them? Or? Not at all at yeah. the time. You know, I it's think... not how people watch TV then. No, exactly. That's the main reason. I think if you look at any show of a comparable era in the 80s, you will find uh, a lot of inconsistencies. I mean, we always joke about in Happy Days that Chuck Cunningham went up to his room and was never seen again. And, you well, know, right. numbers of kids on shows that change and, and Doris Day would lose her kids, you know, one season to the next and then have kids again. Back in, in the day, before the internet... The writers weren't thinking that we were going to ever... The only thing that existed to see these shows again after they aired in primetime was syndication. And even then, it was one a night for a week or whatever. They, they weren't really thinking that any of us was watching it that closely. Right. They didn't think there was going to be an internet where there would be episode titles posted, where right. there'd be synopses, where people could comment and message boards about inconsistencies, and where there'd be downloading and streaming and ways to watch every episode at once. Yeah. So nobody was predicting that. So they didn't really care. The, you know, shows What's are the so, biggest one? Oh my god, there's so many. I mean, Blanche's n- number of kids, they don't yeah. have no idea how many kids she had. She was like, you know, one episode she was like Skiffy, B- Skippy, Biff, and whatever, and then, you know, then there's Janet, and then there's... It doesn't make any sense, the right. number of kids. Sophia's age, you know, she'll talk about being in Sicily in 1908, but she was in Brooklyn, and she has a Brooklyn accent. Right. She'll talk about 1922, Sicily. When the hell were you in Sicily? When were you in Brooklyn? How old are you? I love that they really didn't even know... They didn't, they didn't even nail down Blanche's kids. That's no. a big deal. They didn't nail down Blanche's kids. They would try to nail down Sophia's age. If you watch the sequential seasons, the, you'll have Dorothy say, Ma, you're 81 now, and by the end it's like, Ma, you're 85 now, whatever it is. They did try to age Sophia. But it doesn't make sense with the story she tells. Yeah. One of the ways that they got away with that is saying, well, she, she exaggerates. Her stories are all bullshit. Right. And so, therefore, she's making this up and she's had a stroke. So they had ways of, around it. But most sitcoms, are all sitcoms, are supposed to keep a show Bible. Yeah. And the show Bible documents every bit that's ever been established about the character in every episode. and keep it. It's a running Bible. Right. So that you're supposed to, when you write an episode in season five, look back at seasons one through four and say, well, let's see, how many kids did they say Blanche had? They did keep a Bible. I actually have their Bible. But... What does it look like? It's, it's, it's gigantic. It's like an episode-by-episode episode summary, yeah. and it says, like... And then there's pages where it says, here's how many kids Blanche has, but it's not right compared to other things. And here's the family that members that we've listed for Sophia. So it does try to keep things consistent, but particularly the Golden Girls said this, and I know a lot of shows did this, 
Then it was felt, if it works for this episode and it's funny, just do it. Yeah. You know, if, if we need Blanche to have a daughter because she's going to show up and she's fat and we're going to make fat jokes and yeah. about the whole episode, who cares if she, we said she had three sons and we didn't mention a daughter before? Just just do it and worry about it later. So that's what they did. That's why Sophia had a brother, Angelo, a sister, Angela. Their father's name was Angelo. It didn't, none of it made really sense. It's part of the charm. Yeah. Uh, somebody wants to know, did they all have separate bathrooms? And I don't know if they mean the actresses or was the house I'm set sure up they that... meant the house. Yeah. Um, we know of that bathroom at, at the end of the hall where they would, you know, where people would lock themselves in sometimes when they yeah. were having cold feet about getting, getting married. Yeah. Um, and they would joke about, you know, Sophia would joke about in her bathroom what she did or, right. you know, so I, we never really saw them other than I wanted to doing it we at like renovation to, one time. We like to imagine that, that they, they were on sweet bathrooms. Yeah. They you were know, walking into each other's farts. But that, exactly. But the main thing about the house is that it made no sense at all. Another thing right. that made no sense because they laid out that house Without a kitchen at first, because in the pilot originally there were no kitchen scenes in the very first drafts that they yeah. gave to the designers and said, design something for the show. And so by the time the designers caught up with the latest draft of the show in the pilot, all of a sudden there's a kitchen scene and they don't have a kitchen. And they don't know where they're going to put it. And I, that was kind of short sighted, but I mean, yeah. it was still a pilot. So they tacked on a kitchen from another Whit Thomas Harris show called It Takes Two that had been uh, Patty Duke and Richard Crenna and Helen Hunt and Anthony Edwards. And it was in, in Chicago. It was a, their condo kitchen. So they just took away the Chicago backdrop out the window and put in a Miami one. They made a, the sink area a little smaller and condensed. And that meant that there was no stove. And they slapped it on. And that caused a whole host of problems because where the kitchen now was looked like it was supposed to, it would be where, if you're walking down the hallway, some of the bedrooms are on the right. And they had to move Blanche's bedroom from the left side of the lanai to the right side. It made, they had to flip-flop things, not only that they had established earlier on in the pilot, later, but it made rooms look like they were all in the same space. Yeah. And so people could never figure out. They, they, would get, they would get letters from fans like, love the show, here's just one thing I can't understand. When Rose goes into her bedroom, it looks like she should be out on the lanai. And they're like... <laughs> yep. And they were exactly. like, that is totally true, but yep. they wouldn't admit to it, so they just write back, oh yeah, keep watching. Here's an autograph picture. Yeah. Here's an autograph Where's picture. Where's the exterior? In Brentwood? There, Have yes. you been to the exterior? Oh, yes. Yeah. In fact, uh, one of the photos in, in the book of the exterior I took. Yeah, there, there's the exterior here in Brentwood, California. Right. And it's hard to find, when you're a set designer, production designer, an exterior establishing shot to use that's going to match your crazy sets. Because by definition, sitcom sets are a proscenium. They're 180 degrees. So they're right. not going to make sense. Those rooms will be closed off right. to each other. So you have to find a house that is vaguely reminiscent. And yeah. so they did. There was one with overhanging uh, eaves, and, and it was all one story, and it had tropical landscaping. So they picked this house in Brentwood. And then midway through the show, when uh, Disney World was opening its MGM theme park, they decided they wanted to create a residential street where they could say, as seen on TV. Uh, but the problem was Golden Girls didn't film in Orlando. So they shot some, they built a replica of the Golden Girls house that they actually built 3D with rooms, not just a facade. And they would use it for their tours. But also they then shot some effect shots outside, like rain and wind and whatever. And those did go into the show. So they were able so to it say, was technically seen as seen on TV. I love it. What did they take from the set? Who got the palm tree wallpaper? What's a lanai? <laughs> Do you have anything to answer any of those? Well, I, I don't know who got the palm tree wallpaper. Like wallpaper is a little hard wallpaper, to get. Wallpaper is hard to get. That actually was pieced together, too, because it was they wanted a specific banana leaf look. And so they kind of pieced it together from pieces of wallpaper. It would have been hard to preserve. And then for that bedspread, 
they wanted it to look as you notice Blanche had no headboard it just yeah. like the, the wallpaper pattern just kind of went down onto the bed with the yeah. bedspread and so they had that bedspread custom made from that from those pieces of wallpaper they took it to a, a textile mill and that's amazing that's so an amazing thing to have your bedspread. bedspread go go with your to go with your wallpaper that's an incredible thing to do yeah uh, let me see if I have anything else on my notes um, let's you pick some pictures from your from the observation deck let's oh Mario Lopez did an episode I just yes. want to acknowledge that I love him I love and him even too. in the picture in there he's got the dimple oh yeah even is it wrong that even when he was on Saved by the Bell I found him really cute like yes no it's not wrong. wrong okay it's he's even younger on Golden Girls right yes I know it's so wrong young. that I look back and I think boy he was really cute even then and George Clooney was on and they were like there was one quote where some exec they couldn't cast him like well we could always get George Clooney yeah he'd been kicking around by the time he hit on ER yeah I mean I certainly knew who he was because he'd been kicking around a long time he was on Facts of Life for at least one season you know, yeah playing handyman George and uh, he was on a sitcom called ER that few people remember. Right. Uh, with Mary McDonald and Elliot Gould. I think it was Elliot Gould. Um, so I, I knew him already, and I always was like, that really good-looking guy. Uh, so when he showed up in that episode, I, I don't know if I knew his name was George Clooney, but I certainly knew that I had seen him on TV before. Yeah. And, and yeah, he was one of those actors who had been working at it for a long time, but... Hadn't hit, hadn't hit it big until... And he needed his insurance that year. Yes. And so they kind of threw him a bone. Yeah, and you know, this is a story I had to sort out, and I, I, I put the most plausible version of it in the book, because it's the way I fact-check it, and the way I believe it happened. But there's something... I'll tell you the way the story, the way Barry Finero told it to me, because Barry might have had his dates mixed up, and he realizes that now. Um, George had a reputation as... A hothead. And George has said, I saw a clip on, on YouTube, which I now can, can't find anymore, but I once saw a clip on YouTube where George admitted to punching a producer one time. And the story, as had been told to Barry, was that George was on a, a, a show where the executive, and it was a show with kid actors, the executive producer was being a real asshole to the kid actors and yelling at them for screwing up. And George was sick of it. He was like, you're yelling at kids, you can't do that. And he warned the producer, you got to stop that, you got to stop that, and finally he decked him. And so the story that Barry had heard was after decking a producer, George had been blackballed in Hollywood, and that's why he was about to run out of his insurance, and they were like, can you do him, his agent was like, can you do him a favor and hire him, because we need to reestablish him and, and get his insurance back. The reason why I didn't put it in quite that way into the book is because the show that George was on with kids was called Baby Talk, and that was actually after the Golden Girls. So... Something's not right. Something's in square. But it, it's certainly not beyond George's ken to have defended a kid by punching yeah. a producer. Because George has said in the past he had a temper. Well, even Three Kings, he stood up to David yeah. Russell. Right. So it, it makes sense that it could have happened. I just couldn't verify that it happened right. in that order. So your book is very loving and very, um, you know, it's for fans. Was, it, was there a story that was so fascinating and interesting, but it just wasn't right tonally for your book? Not that I can think of. The good stuff is in there. Right. Good. Yeah. The good, good, good. If it, if it was, you know, a fascinating story to me, if I, for, I jammed it in somewhere. Right. Good. I'm so glad. Was there somebody that you wanted to talk to but you couldn't get? I mean, Estelle, obviously, for the reasons we talked about. Estelle, but... you know, the only person who was long gone was Herb Edelman, so I didn't get yeah. to talk to him. Who's he? he uh, Stan. Oh, right. Okay. So I didn't get to talk to him. I did get to talk to Harold Gould. I'm so glad I did. Yeah. Who played Miles. Um, I... I there's one that I semi-regret, and that is Sid Melton, who played uh, Salvador, Estelle's, uh, Sophia's dead husband. Um, he was alive when I 
was doing this book, but he was very old, in his 90s. And I called him one day, and he was so hard of hearing on the phone, and I was about to say, can I, you know, interview you, come over, and I just thought, I'm going to torture this man. Like, right. he really just does not seem well enough to do it. So that was a case where I put... You made a judgment call. I made a judgment call, and every once in a while, I, you know, I look at an episode with him, and I think, should I have gone for it? You know, I'm still questioning myself. I just really thought, like, I, the last thing I want to do is torture somebody right. to tell me stories. I get it. Now, let me, um, give me your questions from the observation deck that you picked. Okay. Okay. Uh, I think, I think two of them are the same. So okay. These are, these two are the same, and then, and then these two. Uh, who's the most famous person you've ever been on a subway with, or your best random celebrity side? Okay, they're both the same answer. Okay. So, I'm one of those crazy people who recognizes people everywhere, and, and I used to, until two years ago, I lived in New York City. You see famous people everywhere if you have your eyes open. I don't understand people who don't look around their surroundings. Right. Maybe it's because I'm not a headphone person. I don't download music and have head bu- earbuds in all the time. Right. I, I like to stay present when I'm on the street. I think I'm going to get hit by a bus. So I, I'm always looking at people, and they're everywhere. So I'm on. I'm going to. Uh, I'm in Manhattan, and I'm going to go to a Carrie Fisher book signing. Uh, I had met her through friends years earlier, and I was hoping that she'd remember me. So I made plans to meet my husband and my writing partner at, at the Barnes & Noble, which is no longer there, at Lincoln Center, at where the signing was. And they were going to be there ahead of me, and I was bracing from work. So I was going to be, oh, I'll come up on the 1-9 train from downtown. So I get on the 1-9 train, and I'm at 42nd Street, and the door opens. And now, as a sidetrack to this, I had previously been on the subway several times with John F. Kennedy Jr., and I'm nudging everybody next to me. That's John, John. That's John F. Kennedy Jr. And everybody's like, shut up, stop talking to me on the New York subway. Right. So blasé. And I'm like, how do you not care? And I, I embarrassed him by like, goodbye, have a good day, Mr. Kennedy. And he was nice and said, thank you. But you could tell he was like, stop pointing me out. Yeah. So I have a history of geeking out on the subway and embarrassing people. And mostly myself. And so I'm sitting at this moment on the way to the Carrie Fisher book signing. And the door opens at 42nd Street. And this woman comes on, very well put together. With mostly dark hair, but kind of like a white swoosh through the front, an elegant scarf, really. And I look up, and just in the back of my mind, the subconscious voice says, "Oh, that woman kind of, you know, is on the kind of on the order of Meryl Streep." And I look down, and then the front part of my brain says, "That is Meryl Streep, you idiot." So I watch as she comes in, and she sits down at, at in the spot right by the opposite door, and she sits down, and she nods her head down and closes her eyes and then grabs the pole with her right hand and it's just kind of not making eye contact really like with her head down towards her lap with her eyes closed and it's going to ride that way and I this was it turns out it was while she was making The Devil Wears Prada I didn't didn't know that what Miranda Priestley's look was going to be so I didn't realize that was why she looked with that hairstyle and all that I go like a crazy stalker and I stand directly over her holding the pole just over her, over her hand and staring down at her head. Right. Like I'm, like I'm riding jam-packed and I have to be that close, but the subway's not that crowded, so I really don't have to be that close. But she has her eyes closed. So I'm literally like invading her space like a crazy person. smelling her and yeah, right. like making up stories in my head. And literally making up stories in my head because I've decided that somewhere between 42nd Street and Lincoln Center, I decide, oh, she's going to the Carrie Fisher book signing too. Because... She was in postcards from the edge and they're friends. So she's going to the book signing. Isn't that great? So I've totally convinced myself now of this. Like, I made this up. And we'll be friends by the time we walk in And we'll be friends by the time. Exactly. We're going to walk in together as best friends. I've made this. I've I've convinced myself. And so 
we get, you know, the stops advance for 50th Street and 57th Street or whatever. We get to Lincoln Center, and the doors are about to open, and she's still sitting there with her head down and her eyes closed. And I, I'm thinking, she's going to miss her stop. She's so intent on being anonymous, and I haven't, I haven't, of course, revealed her anybody. The fact that I'm standing, like, breathing her exhale probably is, is a factor enough that people would figure it out. Uh, so I, I decide I have to tell her. That she's going to miss her stop. She's going to miss her stop. Oh, God, Jim. What but, do you do? But even worse, I'm going to tell her in a way that won't blow her cover like I did with John John. It's going to be a code that only she and I understand. This is insanity. Right. You already have your secret language. Yeah, we have our secret language. It's insanity speaking. So I decide I'm going to address her as her character from Postcards from the Edge, Suzanne. <laughs> she's going to remember that. No. So I lean in and Shit, whisper yeah. in her ear... Come on, Suzanne, this is our stop. Is that a line from... The- no! I just meant it's our stop, and I'm calling you Suzanne. Yeah. I'm insane. And the minute it left my lips, that's when I realized, holy shit, you made this whole thing up. You made, the, you made it up that she was going to the book signing, you, right. you stand and stared at her, you just whispered... Basically, what's the frequency, Kenneth, Meryl Streep? <laughs> so weird. <laughs> I'm like, well, holy shit, what do I do now? So I run off the subway... And the doors seem like they're open forever. I'm just like, close the doors, close the doors, close the doors. Is she looking at you? No. no but at the last pop- possible second, like with Meryl Street magic, she gets up and steps casually off the subway and the doors close behind her. And so what now... was her stop? I don't know. So now we're standing and completely atypical of New York. We are the only people on the Lincoln Center platform anywhere. And so I'm like, holy shit, now it's me and Meryl Street on the platform. And she says to me, I'm sorry, what did you say? And of course, now I have the opportunity to take it back or say something sane, but I don't. I repeat it. I said, come on, Suzanne, this is our stop. But this time I said it hesitantly, like, I know it's crazy. And and she was like, "Uh uh-huh. And so she waited to see which way I was walking, and she went the other way. And so I run into the... Barnes and Noble, and I actually had to fight my way up the escalator because they were trying to stop people from coming up because it was oversold. But I was like, my husband's in there, he saved me a seat. And I run in, and my face is beat red, and I'm, like it was a hot day anyway, and I'm dripping sweat. Like I just, uh, and I'm just trying to get it out to Frank. I just said, what's the frequency, Kenneth Meryl Streep? And it's, uh, it's, she's going to think I'm crazy. And, like, and he's, he can't understand a word I'm saying. With that, Meryl comes up the escalator just at the last possible moment again as the lights are going down, and brushes right past me and goes into this back room where she, where Carrie must be greeting celebrity fans and stuff. So she was going to the book signing, but I completely freaked her out. But you may have gotten her off the train. She might not have gotten off the train. What if Meryl had, had ridden all the way up to 72nd Street and had She might have ended up in Harlem. She might have ended up in Harlem. You know? And she would have been been like Ross falling asleep on the train in France and waking up in Montreal. Wow. To, to say Suzanne, that's the, that's the craziest. Part. Yeah, yeah, that's where I'm going to be chewing on that for a while. Yeah, good for thank you for sharing that. <laughs> that's amazing. Where's the coolest place you've gotten to go for work? Uh, you know, I got I to ride on the Orient Express with Neil Patrick Harris uh, for CBS Watch Magazine. I remember that story. That was so cool. Wow, was he with David at the time? Yeah, yeah. So it was the two of them. It was the two of them and a whole bunch of us, like you know, the wardrobe person, the photographer, the editors. The, How many days is it? Uh, the train itself was a 24-hour trip. I mean, you okay. can take longer versions. Right. We took the original route, which is Venice to Paris. And so it's it's basically 24 hours. Why do they call it the Orient Express? It's not... Uh, I don't know. It was the Venice Saint-Plan Orient yeah. Express. I forget the, the real history behind why it's the Orient Express. There is a version that goes into Siberia. Yeah. 
but that but it's, I, not, it's not named for that. I don't know why. Wow. Well, new. Siberia is, and so <laughs> I'm so glad you picked this one. What's the most unprofessional behavior you've ever witnessed? Okay. This has nothing to do with my current career. When I was working at the ad agency I mentioned, right, we had uh, a group assistant, basically our group secretary. She was representing, I don't know, maybe she worked for maybe six or eight of us, who was always drunk. And she was, at the time, in her 40s, and my boss spent most of his days on the road so she got away with a lot of bizarre behavior. And so she'd get bombed and by, you know, before lunch, she'd be napping it off on the couch in his office, thrown up into his wastebasket. Um, and occasionally she would, you know, go out for drinks with her father, lunch with her father, and she'd come right. back with a blue tongue because they would drink like blue curacao or whatever. She kept mixers in a secret fridge under her desk. She was very real hardcore. Um, but she would sometimes find her way off the couch in the afternoon when she was really drunk. And I just remember one time her, she took her sweater and kind of put it back over her shoulders and over her head. And she walked down the hall to the printer singing, I'm a baby. And, uh, my favorite story that Frank loves is that we had just moved into a new building and I had to go buy a, a, I was doing programming and I had to go buy a coding book at Barnes and Noble. And so I had to just go to the petty cash store to get some money to go buy the book. And I said to her, where's Petty Cash? And she said, fuck you. <laughs> Did she ever get fired for being drunk? Was she didn't get fired for being drunk. She also, it turns out, was buying pot from the construction workers who were building the, one of the floors below us. So good. And smoking at work. But um, She's like a sitcom character. She is. Just, I always want to adapt her as a sitcom character. She didn't get fired for behavior, apparently because they also have to offer you rehab you know, multiple times before they can let you go if you have an illness, like alcoholism. But um, she did eventually get caught in one of the waves of layoffs that went through the ad agency. Wow. So that was it. But she survived me. I got laid off before her. Damn. Now, you, you, also, write, you also write comedies and, and scripted stuff. Yeah. In addition to journalism. Does being on this side of it, interviewing people, make you want to be part of that world? Because I know you have in the past. Or has it affected... Um, you know, sometimes you think, oh, that must be the dream job. And then you hear what it's yes. like and you're like, oh, shit, maybe I'm, maybe I'm better off being a fan and writing about it from this side and being on the journalistic side. That's, I've experienced that. No, that's such a good question because I've been thinking about that lately. A, a lot of people, I think, when they learn some of the ins and outs of how the sausage is made in a sitcom, right. would be daunted. Oh, you, you know, sometimes you work until midnight and uh, you're pitching lame jokes on the floor or there's a pecking order and it's political and it doesn't matter what you say because that showrunner is not going to like you or it's racist or it's sexist or whatever. So there's a lot of possible negatives and I've seen a lot of them. Uh, but, you know, I'm so stupid it hasn't deterred me. And it, Good. it's funny because people it think it should have by now. And so I have, like, a lot of friends. I was just, Lisa Lampanelli, who, you know, uh, my husband opens for her touring uh, on her comedy tour she just said to me recently like you don't want to be trapped in a room all like all day with all those people and i'm like yeah i do yes like, I, I, do. I still do i know that probably part of me shouldn't but i do right so yeah it's having documented on will and grace and golden girls how other people have done brilliant things in a way yes it I've you want your it. shot Exactly. Well, let, way, me, let me find out I from the inside if it's thing. a nightmare. Right, exactly. And I'll learn my lesson. I but. have seen some things that have, not necessarily on those shows, but on other shows too, I have seen some things that I think, God, if I had been put in that situation, I would have either folded or I would have lost my mind. Right. And so, yeah, there's a lot of peril out there. But having documented other people's brilliance for a while, I want my shot. 
you know, I want my shot to, you know, get my own joke out there that, even if it's one joke that people remember from my show, right. like Carol Burnett's, you know, went with the wind dress, right. which was Bob Mackey's joke. But even if it's one moment from a show, I want, you know, I want my chance to create one of those. Was TV always a thing in your life? Was yeah. it when you were a kid? Why television? I don't know. I mean, this is going to seem like such a maudlin answer. But, uh, oh, we I, love Maudlin on okay, this podcast. Okay, yeah, it's so funny. This is actually the Maudlin portion the of the Maudlin, podcast. Uh, now we get to this the, the very special episode <laughs> of Exactly. Blossom. So you think of everything in terms of the sitcom. Yes, it's the very special episode Yeah, of it's so interesting. I was just watching a Shark Tank episode last night. When you moved to L.A., Tank. did you feel like Laverne and Shirley? Yes. Oh, my God. When you and Frank moved to L.A., well, did you feel like Laverne and Shirley? We could talk about we should make a big Laverne and Shirley move and have our, all our friends come with us. Like, yeah. randomly for no reason. Like, exactly. they all did. Um I was just watching a Shark Tank episode last night where the guy wasn't going to get a deal, and then he told his super maudlin story, and all of a sudden he got a deal from Robert. And I was so disrespectful. In my mind, I was thinking, oh, you've totally played Robert, and that was so gross. And now I'm about to tell a maudlin story. No, but I, I, I feel like people... I don't think it's just cheap sentimentality. I think they connect to... I, I don't know if it's about this time, but everything in the Facebook world, everything's so per- everyone's got it all going on. Yeah. So when somebody says, no, I'm a... I'm a vulnerable about this. I'm a mess about this. I'm here something real rather than all the images. It's so happy, 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 perfect. Find, maybe yeah. it's always been that way with humanity, but I find it, people are, find it refreshing and they, it, it, it lets them off the hook a little bit. Yeah, it makes I them so feel too. You're right, because the Facebook era is constantly like, look how perfect I am. Look at the restaurant I'm at. Look at all the celebrity I'm at. Look right. how my, great my job is. Yeah. 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 No, so I, I have an older brother who's just about a year older than I am, 16 months older. Who's severely the word we use growing up, which really fits him, is retarded. Retarded is not a bad word; it's become a bad word by people right. shortening it into retard. But uh, I'll say intellectually disabled. But you know, he doesn't speak. He is—he's very low functioning. At the time, how much older than you? Sixteen months. Okay. So at the time that I was born, they didn't know. My parents didn't know that there was anything wrong with him. Um, but only when I started doing things before he did, were they starting to realize, oh, wow. something's wrong. And in their attempts to get him to speak and learn and read and all that, they would plant us in front of Sesame Street and Electric Company, which were brand new when I was a kid, as many times a day as it aired. Um, you know, there'd be Channel 13 in New York, and then I think we could even get Channel 55 Long Island from New Jersey. It would air multiple times. And so I watched Sesame Street and Electric Company with him three times a day from the moment I was born. And, you know, I could read very early thanks to those shows. But I think I also just, they always planted us in front of the TV hoping it would spur something in him. And instead, it, it got me hooked. Right. So you were watching TV a lot. I, I was yeah. watching TV, like, literally from my crib yeah. when I was probably a week old, you know. Wow. I have three more things to say. Uh, three more questions. This was a long process. Yes. What was the lowest point when you were like, I cannot look at that... I can't hear that song one more time. I can't pick this thing up. It's never going to be done. It's never, you know, what was the point where you're like, ugh? The lowest point was I have done all this research and spoken to all these people and found all these treasures and I might not get the rights to write a book. You can always write a book talking about a show in your own, you know, you can write an essay on anything, but to use some of the things that fans were going to want to see, these great photos uh, these documents from the show, uh, and right? And you can't just hire a cartoonist. To, no, to, to, right. You, you know, going to be satisfied with that. I mean, hey, to, and having said that, my first book—I mean, that brilliant Glenn Hansen, Glenn Hansen illustration—is the cover. Yeah, now and, it's on T-shirts. And that and illustration. Yeah. Speaking of hiring cartoonists, that illustration has gone on to be so popular in, in merchandise. Yeah. So you can, 
hire an illustrator. Right. But, but that not, was for for the like, cover. not for a book like not this. Not for a book like this. You needed more meat. And it couldn't just be, you know, things that people found not authentic to the era of the show. Right. And it wasn't like the Will and Grace one where the show was still going and they brought you in and they were going to give you access like crazy. Right. And exactly. Will and Grace was a different experience altogether because, as I said, it was an open writing assignment. It was a write, what they call writer for hire. Right. So you are hired at a salary to write a, a, a book. From the business perspective, the downside of that is you don't get royalties when it sells. But so many of the problems are solved for you. Right. They, it was a show that was currently in production. NBC scheduled almost all my... I scheduled a few extra on my own, but they scheduled almost all my interviews, particularly with the main four. So they made sure I got time with each of them. They picked the photos. I didn't pick a single photo in that Will and Grace book. They right. picked them and laid them out, and they had rights to them. And it was and and knew it was happening. They, I, and I knew I didn't have to worry about it. Right. And I knew that they were going to throw hundreds of gorgeous photos into that book. So that's a whole different... La, you know, lack right. of, of focus that I, I, I didn't have to focus on that at all. So there was a time with this where you had, you were done all this work and you, you, were, you weren't sure it was going to happen. Yeah. I thought maybe I did all this for nothing. Maybe I did all this for that first book, which I'm glad I got out there, but the second book may never happen because it, even if I wanted to do a non-illustrated version of it, I don't think any publisher was going to do it. And I could have self-published, but it would have come, you know, it would have been that 900 page all text manifesto. Uh, it, it was good to have the eyes of an editor and the eyes of a, a layout artist doing the design. To what really turned it around? This. Was there a moment where you got one email that said, okay? I guess I will tell this story. I haven't, I've been holding back on telling this story. Um, I had worked with, I had reached out to some people at Disney who had not, I don't think they were authorized to say yes. And they were the, First of all, I can't believe Disney owns. Well, it, it, doesn't, was, it doesn't feel like a Disney thing. But it was produced by Touchstone and Buena Vista Television. Oh, okay. So that's why they own it. All right. Um, and so I had reached out through the proper channels to the right people who had said no, um, because I think they probably weren't authorized not to say no. Um, and then I had gone, tried to go through, I have a lot of friends and connections at Disney in various parts of the company, and found, and they would always, you know, they were big supporters of the book. They would, I had so many people help me with this. I owe so many thank yous. And each of those people would investigate, you know what, I'm going to, this is ridiculous. Fans would love that book. It's a good thing for Disney. It's a win-win. It only promotes their show, which is all true. So I'm going to find somebody for you at Disney who can say yes. And I'd get my hopes up, and that person would come back with his tail between his legs a few weeks later and say, I was referred to that same person who said no to you. Like, it all funnels back to that same person. And so it really looked like it was just going to be a no. And then last May, May of 2015, I was in New York... At, uh, I cover the upfront presentations every year. Right. New TV presentations for the fall season. You, you know your shit about TV. Yeah. Well, you have to, you know, if you want to know your shit, you have to go to all that stuff. So ABC in recent years, ever since really 9-11 and then particularly the 2008 financial d- collapse, the networks have been cutting back on their upfront presentations little by little. And sometimes they go back and they backtrack and make them bigger again. But right. the trend has been... With the internet, with other ways of showing people pilots, you don't need to throw as huge a party and invite as many advertisers as had been done in the past. So ABC particularly had cut back. Yeah, there's no such thing as 90s swag anymore. Right. There's a little. CBS still throws a big party. NBC throws a small after party. Like, they all do it a little differently. It used to be every network. Fox has a big party now still, too. But every network used to have a huge one. So ABC, I know, I knew had really cut back in in previous years. And they would do this presentation at Lincoln Center... Where they would have uh, just clips of the shows, they would have advertisers in the audience, and they 
in previous years hadn't really even brought in much of the talent for the new shows. They hadn't flown them in, which is expensive. At, normally when they, a lot of the uh, networks will fly in talent, it's so they can press the flesh with advertisers and take pictures at the, after, at the party and all that. So this past year, 2015, though, I'm at the ABC presentation, and at the end they bring in all this talent. On, the, on stage that I hadn't known was there. And now the, the cast of our 2016 new shows. And it's, you know, 50 actors on take the stage. I'm like, wow, they must be having a party that I don't know about that must be a super secret party. With that, uh, I run into, as I'm exiting Lincoln Center, I run into a girl I went to high school with who works in advertising. I ha- used to work in advertising. And she says, are you going to the after party at the Mandarin Oriental? And I'm like, yeah, I'm, I am now. I'm going with you. So... I went to, I got in line with her, crashed the party, pretended to have an invite, and went into the party with the express purpose of finding Robert Iger, the CEO of Disney, and other people who are high up at Disney, because my only shot was really just to get a fan at the top to say, I know this is good, mutually beneficial for Disney and for, you know, for you, but also for Disney. Because again, I'm going to be promoting their show. I'm not going to be denigrating their show. I'm not going to be, you know, doing anything bad to its memory or its legacy. So I quickly downed a few Chardonnays and I went up to Robert Iger and I told him my situation and I asked for his help and he referred me to a few other people in the company who I then spoke to at that party and uh, I followed up with them by email and a week later I had a yes. Holy shit. So I owe them all a huge thank you. Robert Iger, Zenia Mucha, Kevin Brockman, particularly those three, and I'm sure other people at Disney I owe a huge And thank your you. high school friends. And my high school friend Betty. God bless him. But, the, but you know, talk to the head. What's his title, Robert Iger? CEO, I believe. Yeah, and to go to, up to a party and say, da-da-da-da-da, and, and to get your pitch out. Like, were you thinking, what the fuck am I going to say? How do I say it really quick? I'm sure I said it really nervously. I said it with two glasses of wine on my breath, probably. And, you know, at a party like that, you know, he's going to be pulled in a million directions. Of course. I I had bigger fish to fry. Five seconds yeah. with him. He was so nice. I mean, he literally, you know put his hand to his chin and was like, hmm, okay, tell me about who did you talk to? All right, well, let me think. Talk to this person. Like, it wasn't a, oh, yeah, yeah, call my office later, and then he'd never bother. He literally thought about it. He was trying to solve your problem. Gave me a, you know, a clue and a lead, and and then when he told me, talk to this person, I said, may I go to her right now and say you said to do that? And he said, yes. So I was even able to use his name and say, Mr. Iger just said, when I spoke to him, that I should talk to you. I mean... You and within, within a week, a week and a half, it was, it was, it was that was, I can tell you, that was the Tuesday of Upfront Week and the Friday before Memorial Day. So 10 days later. Of 2015. Of 2015. And, and the book exists now less than a year later. Yeah. Then I got my book deal in January of 2016. So, and you, you, you got your deal in 2015. No, 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 no. Sorry. I take it back. So we're a year, a year, a year, year off. Year. I had gotten the book deal in January 2015, okay. but... It was on hold because I didn't have rights. That's what happened. I'm I mixing see. my years. Yes, sorry. Wow. And then so, but the book. So between January 2015 and April 2016, the book was. You know, and then you were like, "Shit! Now I have to now I have to bring it all together. together, right? And get it edited down and all that." But yeah, I mean, literally that Friday before Memorial Day 2015, um, I w- and again I was in New York, so I was dealing with people. I, just because I was there for the upfronts, I was dealing with people in California and Getty Images, who I was licensing. Uh, the photos from, uh, they were in Chicago, the, my rep there. So she was, my rep there who was very helpful too, she was always the one to say like, we would love to sell you photos, but we always need Disney's permission. And, you know, until you have them saying, yes, we can't sell them to you. So I actually heard from her at Getty in Chicago at 6.30 my time 
the Friday before Memorial Day weekend, when I would have thought everybody was out of every office and on vacation. And it's just a simple email. Disney has decided that, you know, this project is a go, and we were able to sell you the photos, and you're all set. And I was like, oh, my God, that's a miracle. And so I owe it to those people. I was going to ask you what the high point was. Like, what that's was the, the high point. The high point was getting that email. The getting that email, because, you know, it, it, it's so great to have their support behind me. They then licensed me additional materials that I found, and I was able to work with them. You know, once you have a yes, and you have that a big company like that behind you and supporting you, I mean... Have they seen the book yet? I don't know. I hope yeah. so. I, I was at something last night uh, where there I, I should have brought it because I thought there were some ABC family and ABC or Disney people there. The, uh, the showrunner's husband uh, is one of the Disney executives. So I, I meant to bring it with me. But I, I want to mail it to it those three heroes out. in particular. Yes, it just came out though, right? It came out last Tuesday. April Are 10. you doing any events that we should plug? Uh, there's a possibility. Put April 30th in your calendar if you're in Los Angeles and stay okay. tuned. I, I can't announce where it is yet, uh, and then there might be some other things, too. Is it available? I know it's online now. But it's is online. it out? It's available in, in, in stores and things like that? I know of some stores that have, have yeah. given some people a problem, uh, but uh, other stores, I know the bookstar here in Studio City, it's in the window. Yes, it so, should be. You yeah. should be on the it's marquee, in, and you should do an event. I know. I want to. So it's, it's in Barnes & Noble stores, and it's yeah. in, uh, I'm sure, some specialty stores, and certainly online. Well, Jim, I just want to say to you, as I was reading it, I'm like, this is such a gift for fans. It is like so so much TLC is in it, so much attention to detail. It is not like, oh, let's make a quick buck or whatever. There's so much passion and love and and uh, affection in the pages of this book that it comes across in every page. Well, so, thank you. I mean, that's that's what I intended and I'm glad it came it translated. Yeah, what does it mean to you now that it's done? The whole experience. You know, it's it was such a long experience that I almost, I still it still hasn't hit me that it's done. In fact, I'm in so much in denial that literally the book came out on Tuesday. On Wednesday, I was at, in the parking lot of the Tender Greens here in Studio City, and one of the actor guest actors on the Golden Girls, who I whom I hadn't been able to find, walked past me in the parking lot, and I said to and him, "You're like, oh, I'm gonna put, I'm doing a book, and oh look, shit, oh shit, it's already." But out. you know what? I am someday going to update like the ebook or whatever. So yeah. I traded email addresses with them, and I'm going to do an interview. And then somebody else popped up on Facebook the other day, commenting on the book, and she's another actress who was on the show in a month. You know, not a huge role that everybody remembers, right? But, but you'd want to hear that. But I want to hear. And so I'm going to talk to her on Tuesday. So I'm still amassing more stuff, and I think that shows I'm in denial that it's over. Can you watch the show now? Yeah, are you taking I still break? do. No, still watch it. I'm going to go home and program it into my TiVo because what I want to do now is watch an episode and then go to each chapter and as I do it. But you're better it. off. I mean, it, obviously it requires having the DVDs. You're better off watching the DVDs because they're unedited. Oh, I see. And the TV the, stuff is... The TV stuff is, you know, had to cut some stuff for extra commercial time. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. Congratulations to you on all your hard work and perseverance. Thank um, you. Can people follow you on Twitter or things yeah, like that? What do you want to plug? At Jim Colucci, C-O-L-U-C-C-I. Yes. Uh, Facebook, same thing. It's Everything's just Jim Colucci. Right. JimColucci.com. Do you have a favorite Golden Girls like sign-off or catchphrase or whatever that you, we can sign off with? Ah, uh, that's a tough one. Right. I mean, with Will and Grace, I knew... Will and Grace, had a, I had a weird experience with that where... We'll, go, we'll sign off with that one. We'll sign off with that Do you want to hear a fun story that I yeah. about Will and Grace? Yeah, yeah. Um, a good friend of mine went and saw Sean Hayes in Act of God. Yes. Recently at the Amundsen. And he said that he saw Eric McCormack there in the lobby with... Eric was with, like, a friend or an agent or something like that. And Eric got on his knees and took a picture in front of the giant picture of Sean as God. Like he's either praying or blowing him. 
And whoever took the picture as agent or whatever was like, oh, he's going to love that one. So I love that they're still having a, a playful affection and yeah, that Eric shows up to support, support Sean. Yeah. Eric's a great guy and Sean is too. So yeah. I mean, I, I'm glad to see that. Isn't it good? It's yeah. nice to know. So what's your, what's your will and grace well, the fun, So the funny thing is, for as much as, as, as I said with photos and stuff, I didn't have any choice for the book. And I'm glad they did a great job and I didn't right. have to do it. Um, there were a few times where I thought, I wish I could choose the thing to go here or whatever. Right. And so I, in my mind, I was thinking, I would love, there's a one line from Will and Grace that I would love to choose to put on the back of the book just by itself. And when they sent me my version of the book to look at, I flip and the back cover is that quote. So it's what, is your idea that you had and they and didn't I never know told it. a soul. Great minds think alike. I literally never told, I didn't even tell Frank, like this is the quote I would love by itself on the back of the book. So it was exactly what you envisioned. And it was exactly, and it was like, how did they do that? They, they took a quote that's not even that well known from the show and put it on the back of the book and I never had told them that. And it was, love you, love everything about you, thinking about being you for Halloween. Wow. What a random thing to pick and put on the end of the book. So that's what that's the sign off I always love to say. We love love you, love everything about you, think about being you for Halloween. I'm gonna make that the title of this podcast, but maybe shorter. Yeah, maybe a little. All right, that's awesome. Congratulations again. Thank and you. everybody, buy the book, order it, you will love it. It's delicious. And um, thank you for being a friend. That I was gonna say that I thought that's that was a little on the nose. A little on I, the nose. I, <laughs> all right. Sorry, Dennis. No worries. That for you. Yay, bye. Bye. Thanks again to Jim Colucci. Buy his book, Golden Girls Forever. It is delightful. All right, so this happened. It was the American Idol finale, and I watched it with my friend Glenn over at his place, and I was not prepared for how powerful and emotional it was going to feel because, God, remember watching American Idol all those years, and we were all so into it, and I've kind of kept tabs on it the last few years, but I was like so into that finale. I, first of all, I thought everyone sounded great, except for the little kid that sang with Harry Connick. I think she kind of was the weak link. Okay, she's 10, but still, I was like, everyone else sounded great. And the medleys they put together, how hard that must have been, and to keep all of those moving parts. And you barely even saw the top 10 from this year. They were like, not even, I don't even know if they were in the building. Although I did see Dalton's hair. I'm a Dalton fan. And I bought his single, Strike a Match. So there you go. Um, I wanted LaPorsche to win. I don't love Trent, but these things happen. But it was just so the end of an era. And it just brought back so many memories of watching American Idol. And I remember going to some party in like 2002. And they put us onto teams to do some game. And we had to come up with a team name. And we were Team Kelly Clarkson. I think this was before she even won. But we were on board um, her medley was amazing. Carrie Underwood. Oh my God. So I was like a little bit sad. Like we didn't love it enough while it was here and now it's gone. But then Ryan said that thing at the end, like for now or some nonsense. So it'll probably come back in some, in some way. But for the American Idol team, I thought they did a phenomenal job putting together that series finale. And, um, maybe it's no Grease Live. I don't know, but it's sure better than the Oscars. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time on Dennis Anyone. Bye.